everyone to Free Association here on Unsafe Space. This is a, a series where we talk to interesting people who can provide an important perspective on relevant political, cultural, or philosophical issues, or psychological issues, I guess. Uh, I'm your host, Carter Laren. Before we begin, please take a moment to like this video, share this video if you have time, make sure you're subscribed to the channel, and if you're able, consider heading over to unsafespace.com to support us financially. So, okay, let's, without further ado, let's begin. Um, today, I'll be speaking with the hosts of the Guns and Mental Health podcast, which you can find on Apple and other podcast platforms. Um, and they are Jake and Michael. Jake Wiskirchen, Wiskirchen, I'm sorry, I think I mispronounced it, but Jake Wiskirchen is a licensed marriage and family therapist and lifelong gun owner who has worked in the mental health field for more than a dozen years. He owns Zephyr Wellness, an outpatient counseling agency in Northern Nevada, as an and is an avid home brewer. You can find him on Twitter at Jake Whisk and on YouTube at Zephyr Wellness. We'll put links to that below. So there's Jake. Welcome. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for coming. And uh, and his co-host, Michael Sedini, uh, who is the president of Walk the Talk America, which is an organization that aspires to reduce suicides and other negative incidences associated with firearm ownership. He's also a third generation firearm industry professional and known by many as the most ungun gun guy. Uh, you can follow him at Mike Sedini on Twitter and walkthetalkamerica.org. Mike, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Did I butcher your last name as well? Am I just butchering last name? <laughs> no, you got it. You nailed it. A lot of a lot of people end up putting an L in his name. They call him Soldini for some or reason. Or Sardini. Sardini. I did I did Soldini in my head a few times this morning as I was like reading. I was like, Soldini. I'm like, no, there's no L. Stop it. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, look, um, first of all, thank you both for, for taking your time, uh, to talk with me today. Um, and I, I want to start with you, Michael, because, oh, wait, first I'm going to move you around. I'm going to move. Let's, let's do this in real time. We'll try and move me down here. Yeah, there you go. Um, I want to start with you cause I want to, I want to hear your, I want you to tell the audience your background story in the origins of walk the talk America and the guns and mental health podcast, which I think starts with a dinner. Um, but yeah. Start where you want, I guess. Okay, well, I'll just start with Eagle Imports, which is a company I used to own. We were one of the largest importers of firearms from uh, foreign manufacturers in the United States. So basically, if you had a, a firearms company, say, in Argentina, and you wanted to break into the U.S., you found someone like me who handled everything from your warranty, sales, customer service, you know, everything, to turnkey operation for you to break into the U.S. market. Um, in 2009, the president of my company and a uh, uh, very near and dear friend to, to my family, took his own life with a firearm. And it was one of those situations where in the firearms industry, we just did not address suicide by firearm because we were so afraid that it would be weaponized against us. And it is in many cases still to this day, right? That, that huge number that yep. you always see, many of, the, uh, many of those numbers are comprised of suicide by firearm. And I always wanted to do something, uh, but I never could quite put my finger on on it, you know, and it, and it was, I wanted to be more than just donate to, uh, to mental health, like those type of situations, because notoriously, um, we've always kind of passed the ball and said, well, it's a mental health issue. They need to figure it out. And that leads to the dinner that started Walk Talk America. My national sales manager and I, um, were out celebrating. We had just closed a big deal and, uh, we invited a random stranger to the table, to, uh, you know, cause we were talking to her at the bar. And uh, it was crowded and she was there by herself. 
And we were just talking about firearms in general. And she, she didn't know much, but she was like, look, what happens during uh, these mass shootings? I said, well, everybody blames us. We, you know, we blame mental health and then nothing ever happens. And uh, she asked like one question. It changed my life. Uh, it changed Jake's too. Right. Uh, she said, uh, you know, if you, if you've identified like what the issue is and you know, it's not the gun, right. How do you work with the mental health community to find solutions that you can, you can actually live with. And uh, you know, my national sales manager was like, he's like, nah, we really we don't. don't. Do yeah. We don't do that. He's <laughs> like, you should donate a dollar gun. And it, you know, he was kind of joking, but you know, I took that very serious. I was like, yeah, we should probably do more as a, as an industry. And um, that, that was the night that started, you know, this, this whole organization, it was just off that random question. And now here we are like four years later and you know, we've grown to this national organization of uh, comprised of people from the firearms industry and outside of the firearms industry and looking for innovative solutions to get people the help they need when they're in crisis. So, you know, that's the origin story. Wow. Uh, well, you invite the right pretty girl to your dinner. You didn't say she's pretty, but in my brain, she's, she's a pretty girl <laughs> the bar that you invited. Um, so, so Jake, how did you become a part of this? Why don't you give, give the audience your background and tell us how did you become a part of this? And I'm particularly interested in, were you a gun owner and part of the gun community before this or, or did that come to you through Michael? So that's like uh, five different questions, and I'll try to take yes. them in reverse order. Um, no, I was not part of the gun community. Yes, I've been a gun owner my whole life. Um, I had him on my podcast. We became friends, and um, I uh, my background is uh, I'm a marriage and family therapist by trade. I'm licensed in Nevada, and I own and operate the company you mentioned before, Zephyr Wellness. And I wore a bunch of different hats, but nobody's really interested in it verbal resume i don't think you can you can look me up and find you know my cv or whatever but um i uh the the podcast that i that i also host uh, and have had for several years is called noggin notes and noggin notes uh has a really cool origin story of its own that uh involves a fraternity brother of mine who works in and has worked in the gaming industry for a really long time for a company called igt international game technology uh, we, we both are from Reno. We went to school at the University of Nevada. He ended up graduating, moved overseas to China, worked in Macau for a number of years, met a guy, started his own company uh, doing app gaming. And um, one of the guys who worked for him, uh, Safiso Rapinga is his name. Safiso met another guy named Tom Phillips from the UK. And Safiso is originally from South Africa by way of Singapore for his education and landed in Cambodia with Lauren, who is my fraternity brother. So now we got all the names straight. Uh, Safiso and Tom are talking about how they could, uh, you know, want to make earth better. And they said, what about a mental health app? And so they created Noggin Notes. Tom's an app developer. Safiso just had a cool idea. Lauren overhears this and says, you ought to talk to my buddy, Jake, who's back in the States. He does this for a living. So we jump on a Skype call back in late 2016, and it literally was Skype because I think it's the last time I used Skype. And uh, and I listened to these guys, and they they told me about what they're doing. I said that's really awesome, but it's really obvious you are you know no idea what you're <laughs> doing. Uh, but I'd love to help guide you on this. And uh, so I gave them some ideas, and they said that's great. Would you like to write some articles for our app? And I said yeah, that's great. Um, but I just finished doing a radio show for some some months. And I said, you know, it's faster than writing is talking. We should do a podcast. And they said, well, how do we do that? I said, I have no idea. I just thought. Of the idea. <laughs> and uh, so Noggin Notes became a podcast embedded in an app. And that was 2017. And so because of 
Safisa's location, his his birthplace in South Africa, living in Cambodia, Tombi in in the UK. Um, Naga Notes jumped off basically as a as an international podcast with me as the host, and I was interviewing all these people from all over the world, which is like really edifying, super cool, very educational. And I'm very, very proud to say now, even though Naganos is not an app anymore because apps are very expensive to maintain, hopefully one day we'll get back to that. But Naganotes now has three different podcasts, uh, mine, which is the, the OG, and then uh, Naganotes Africa and Naganotes Cambodia, both of which launched uh, in early 2021. So we're truly international. It's very cool. And Naganotes as an organization is bringing mental health education and training to parts of Southeast Asia and, and Africa to cultures and societies that have no clue about mental health because it's literally never been part of their culture, their society before. And Safiso, who is, he just stumbled into it because he liked it and he was curious, is now leading this effort to bring more exposure and contact. Which So I'm, I'm really proud of that. I have almost nothing to do with what's going on in Cambodia and South Africa other than say it's neat to be affiliated with it. But Naga Notes is the podcast that connected me with Mike because I also have a friend also from the same fraternity who manages his mom's uh, retail range, uh, retail store and range here in town. And they sell guns and you shoot guns there. And Jordan and I have been talking about this concept of firearms and mental health for years. And one day he texts me and says, have you heard of Walk the Talk America? And I said, no. And I, you know, Googled them and them turned into be, you know, Mike and, uh, and so Mike and I connected and I said, man, you got a really cool concept here, Guns and Mental Health. You want to be on my podcast? So we had the podcast. And like I mentioned before, we became super close friends out of that. And one thing led to another. I ended up being on their board. Uh, but in the process of doing so, I I had this idea like we should train practitioners in firearms cultural competence so that we're not goofy and weird and judgy when a gun owner comes into counseling and expresses a desire for help and says, oh, by the way, I, you know, I like to go shooting. It helps alleviate my anxiety or something. And we don't know how to deal with that, right? We, we get, we get awkward and uncomfortable and we, we trip over our words because largely as a community, our, our professional realm doesn't understand firearms. So I said, we should do this thing and we should, we should train clinicians on how to be, you know, comfortable. And we could even do it for continuing education credit. So when they renew their licenses, this goes toward suicide prevention or whatever it is. And that's the concept of uh, training practitioners was born. We did a class in 2019 and it went over well, 12 or 14 people attended. We did another one later that year, another you know, 12 or 14 people attended. We had one scheduled for Vegas in 2020 and then the world ended. And so we didn't get to do that. But what we ended up doing was pivoting to a virtual platform hosted by the University of Nevada, uh, their, their CASAT program, which is an acronym for Center for the App uh, Application of Substance Abuse Technologies. They hosted us and we did a, another training online and we ended up with 74 people. And then we did another one that had 236 people. And so we found out that, that this rippled across not only the community, but across like the country, because we were getting people dropping in from all over America, taking our cultural competence course and walking away with valuable information and vo new vocabulary on how to handle firearms owners when they come into counseling. So the flip side of that coin is that we reach out to gun owners and demystify counseling process so that they they don't feel you know scared to come in. So that's my involvement. I'm, I'm really excited to, to be doing it. It's, it's a neat thing. It's a nonprofit. And um, 
I'm, I'm blessed to have my salary generated by my employees so I can go do things like this and help uh, help move the needle on stuff and suicides and improving mental wellness. Uh, I mean, that's a fascinating story, and, and I'm glad that you guys are doing this. I mean, um, I've been a gun owner for basically my – well, more than my entire adult life because I think I was given a rifle when I was 16. So um, I've been I've Same. been a gun owner, um, and – you know, I, it's been a long time since I've been super active in the community, but I was at, at one point really active in the community. And one of my favorite instructors uh, committed suicide um, with this with his firearm. Um, and it's not you're right, it's not something that people talk about. Um, and mental health generally is, is stigmatized in the U.S. I mean, not a lot of people, unless you're in the Bay Area, like I am, not a lot of people talk about their therapists. Right. Or like, oh, I went to therapy or I did. And especially in the gun community. And I want to ask you, like, just right off the first red flag that I see uh, is red flag laws. Basically, like in 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 California, uh, just just to give people an example. Um, and, and this is not this has nothing to do with therapy. But when California uh, legalized medicinal use marijuana, um something that a lot of people didn't realize is if you went out and got your card, your your card that allowed you to go buy marijuana, the feds were targeting you as is not able to own a firearm anymore. And you are now you're on their list of like, Oh, you've got uh, be, because to get the, the, the card, you had to have some, you know, problems didn't have to be a mental problem, but it could have been PTSD. It could be, could be anything. I mean, they were pretty liberal with with handing out cards and so a lot of people found themselves in a situation where they, they were not sure they would be able to purchase a firearm again um which in california isn't a big deal because mostly you can't purchase firearms anyway but um but it's a real issue and and when i think about red flag laws i get concerned that you know should i would i ever tell a therapist that i shoot a gun what like what happens if they find out are they gonna freak out and are they gonna am i gonna end up on some list and then my neighbor gets me uh, you know, ban like gets me banned from from ever purchasing a weapon or owning a weapon again. Can you talk about? Am I crazy or is that a real fear? And what's the status of that around the country? This is this is my lane. Now, I I didn't choose this, um, but in constructing the curricula for our courses, I ended up having to study a lot about red flag laws, including our own in Nevada, which didn't exist until January of 2020. So our first courses were in 19. It was like, here's gun cultural competence. And then I had to start integrating this new law. And, and I also I also teach uh, police officers, too. And much to my surprise, they don't get taught about red flag laws. So red flag law or otherwise known as ERPO, E-R-P-O, Extreme Risk Protection Order, generally are carbon copies of the same law across multiple different states. And they all basically say the same thing with some some notable exceptions. So I think right now we have 19 different states that have a red flag law in them. And uh, that may have changed in the last six months or so. I haven't kept up. But they they basically all look alike. And they say something to the effect of if you're in a if you're in a situation, if an individual who is a gun owner is in a situation where they could potentially cause, you know, impairment or harm or death to self or others through use of a gun, uh, then a concerned person can file a petition with the court to uh, issue this protection order. And we, we've heard about other protection orders are called, uh, you know, uh, restraining orders, colloquially speaking, but, but it's a protection order. There's either short or long. 
Uh, and it's for the purpose of separating a person from another person if they're, you know, dangerous or whatever. So this is for firearms. It's to separate a person from firearms with this protection order. So you can petition the court and uh, the court can say thumbs up or thumbs down. And then that order goes out to the deputies. The deputies come knock on your door and they say, hi, Mr. Wiskirchen, please hand over your guns. Uh, you're not safe per this uh, order from the court as filed by these people or whatever. And then I'm supposed to hand that over. And so you can imagine how this might unfold. Law enforcement is skittish about it for multiple reasons. One is officer safety. Obviously, you come knock on somebody's door and say, hand over your firearms. It's not going to go well. Um, two is Fourth Amendment. Uh, so, you know, seizure laws. You know, can, can they even take your property? Another one is due process laws, Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, obviously, the Second Amendment is involved. So nobody really bothered to hammer this out when the legislation was being passed. Uh, mental health people were not consulted. My, my, my folks were not at the table. Uh, so there's, there's issues of like disclosure and therapy and who can contact whom and all that stuff. So that gets into the, the meteor question is like, should you be scared of, of counseling? Now I said that there's notable exceptions to some of these laws. New Jersey is one of those laws that doesn't look like the rest of the, the ERPOs across the country. And New Jersey's law is different insofar as where the rest of the laws say law enforcement or family member, and family members usually defined in statute or, or however your, your state's laws uh, read, as being blood relative, you know, third degree consanguinity, that kind of thing, uh, live-in spouse, live-in mate, that kind of thing. Um, so it's family or law enforcement can petition the court. Okay, well, in New Jersey, it says any person can petition the court. That could be your counselor. It could be your doctor. It could be your jilted ex-lover. It could be a uh, teacher at school. So any person, and that's very, very threatening to somebody who wants to go seek help because they're not sure whether or not this person they're in, in whom they're going to confide is going to keep their confidence. So where I get to push back as a professional with a license as granted by the state, we have a different chapter of of laws that govern our profession. And those laws usually point to an ethical code or a set of ethical codes that say, thou shalt not break confidentiality except for, and the the, the typical, uh, you know, four planks are immediate threat to self or others, which could be a, you know, a red flag issue, uh, harm to children or vulnerable populations like the elderly or the handicapped, uh, court order, or you give me permission, you sign a release, right? So I don't get to break your confidentiality for very extreme reasons. But then the ethics also say, you don't just get to go run to the authorities to, you know, corral somebody and send them away just because you think they're a threat or a danger. So let's take a random run of the mill suicidal person who's, um, you know, expressing some, some threat. Um, take the firearms out of it. My first line of defense is not to call dispatch and have deputies knock on their door to handcuff them and take them away. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. What I would do is seek a higher level of care and that higher level of care may be something like come back tomorrow, right? That could be more intense uh, service frequency. It might be, Hey, go check yourself in at the hospital. Uh, it's not take your property. Like that's, that's not what we do. We don't, we don't just pull the, pull the, the rip cord on like, you know, take somebody's, crap away from them because we think they're unsafe. So I try to say that to people and say, look, look, we have ethical protections under our, our scope of practice and our, and our license that say that's not the first line of defense. The first line of defense is get you better level of care. If you're really that sick and you're really that disturbed, we need to get you taken care of first, not 
steal your shit. So, so I try to say that and whether or not that resonates, I have no idea, but I also Can am I just aware pause that, before yeah, you go, go ahead, to the yeah. next, because, because yeah. I hear that and that's cool. If you were my therapist, I would believe you. Um, but not everybody is, but not in the Bay area. Like, right. I mean, some, some crazy wacko leftist therapist, which most of them are frankly, not to, yeah. you know, impugn your profession, but no, you're not, you're not wrong. Crazy leftists. They might they might decide that that is the next step. Is there, is there anything? Like, can they do that? Just because just because you don't, does that mean they can't? Yeah, they 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 can um, if they want to risk their license. Because ultimately, the the individual who's aggrieved can come back and file a licensing board complaint and say they acted out of scope, they uh, overstepped, you know, whatever it is. But you got to consider who's on the licensing boards. Same professionals, right. right? You know, is that really a, a fallback? So I want to kick it over to Mike though, because Mike, Mike and I have recently, not only has he been silent this whole time, and I don't want to exclude him, but we recently interviewed a gal from New York who is in the field. She's she's a nurse, um, but she's she's also a, a social worker by tra uh, by license, I think, and she's she was on our podcast and she's fighting something that she inadvertently stumbled across because she herself is a gun owner where the New York safe act, the New York not safe act came into play. And, um, and that was really problematic. So I want Mike to share that because it, it it's, you know, it's, it's his former coast <laughs> that was afflicted. Yeah. So that's the, that's the issue, right? So we're trying to, to make sure that gun owners aren't afraid to seek counseling, but there are certain instances where I would say like the state of New York, that's not necessarily the best option to go to if you're going to be honest and willing to lose your gun rights. Right. So um, that's very problematic. And in working with organizations like Mental Health America, they actually don't see the New York Safe Act as safe. They don't like it. Right. Um, and that's an issue. So back to the original question. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a huge barrier to entry for people to go get help. And I mean, if I had a dollar for everybody that's contacted me, just, you know, reached out to Walk Talk America and just said, hey, um, I'm thinking about going to get help or, you know, I went to go get help and the person asked if I was a gun owner and I just lied <laughs> and yep. I never went back. Yep. I mean, we, we wouldn't have to go champion for money. Right. So, you know, you take an instance like uh, Sandy out in New York um, where they, I, I believe they messed with the wrong person this time. Right. Because she has, you know, Jake, when you agree that she has a background in that to where she can navigate those waters and fight that fight. But, you know, it does become problematic, you know, for people, I mean, that's one of our biggest issues. Right? It's, I mean, gun owners don't want to, To uh, first of all, we don't want to appear to be weak. I mean, that's just something that's been ingrained with us for so long is we consider ourselves like protectors, right? We protect our family. We protect she ourselves. Yeah, yeah we're, we're familiar with firearms and how to handle them. And there's, there's just something tough about that, right? Or perceived as tough. Um, you know, so it's hard enough to get people to say like, okay, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to go down and be vulnerable and, and figure out what's wrong with me. So, yeah, I agree with you, though, that red flag laws, there's so much aspects about red flag laws that uh, just annoy me. You know, they, they take away the firearm, but they don't take away anything else. They don't drain the pool. They don't look through the medication. You know, they don't take the rope out of the house or the knives. Um, they just take that one particular thing, um, which is kind of like a slap in the face, right, to gun owners. Uh, yeah, I mean, it makes me suspicious of the motive because uh, I don't think the motive is actually to help the person. Or, um, <laughs> I think the motive is to go after. I mean, 
just from a third party who knows nothing about that. I look outside, I look at this, and I say, oh, if if that's what you're doing, you're not really trying to help the person. You're just trying to go out. You're trying to enable a way to go after firearm owners eventually, and and this is your your wedge in the door. Yeah, um, you're you're not wrong there. I'm gonna jump in real quick. It's like I I think that what happens is you get large interests like you know backed by Bloomberg, for example, who's openly rabidly anti-gun. And they masquerade with this message of safety. And I put that in air quotes for the listening audience who's not watching on YouTube. It's like, you know, the safety, right? And then you get some, pardon the phrase, but useful idiots. They're not idiots usually. They're they're smart people, but just they don't have to bother to do their research because in Nevada, for example, our legislators meet once every two years for 120 days and they they cram all this stuff in and they just don't have time to digest it all so what they do is their ears get attuned to the loudest voices and the loudest voices are backed by bloomberg money and they come in and go safety 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 and they go yeah yeah yeah, all right cool cool sounds good but like i referenced earlier mental health people were not at the table when those laws were passed and in our particular session i had my own thing going on with my licensing board but i'm going to hold up a book here it's called the behavioral science of firearms and it's written by a guy named johnny pirelli also out of new jersey pirelli's a psychologist and if people like Pirelli or myself were present in some of these legislative discussions, we would have said, hey, um, what you're asking here not only creates a barrier to care, but it puts an undue burden on our profession to certify or decertify people as qualified or unqualified or healthy or unhealthy to own firearms or possess them. So that's all well and good that you have this well-intended law that's going to separate person from weapon in time of crisis uh, by force of government. But did you consider the path to reentry? And they didn't. And the problem is, if you look at most of these laws, there's there's the the ladder of of um, of burden of proof. And so for a family member, for example, in Nevada, and I'll cite Nevada law because it's what I know best. Oregon looks exactly the same because I studied that one. Um, the burden of proof for a family member to file that application with the court is reasonable suspicion that you're going to hurt yourself or somebody else. Um, law enforcement is probable cause, which is a, a step up. And then uh, to restore rights is the top step of the ladder, which is clear and convincing evidence. So you can have your rights restricted through reasonable suspicion. And, and by the way, the court you know, has to take a what's called a preponderance of evidence, which is a step above probable cause. They have to take a preponderance of evidence as evidenced in that application to remove the rights, but to return the rights is clear and convincing. And so the judges are, you know, when they get these applications to restore the rights, are looking around going, well, who am I going to ask to you know, decertify this person who's been certified as too, too unsafe. And they're looking at people like me or Pirelli and saying, Hey, can you, can you like give an eval on this guy? Like assess him for being safe or whatever. And we're like, I don't know. Is there <laughs> insurance the training. For that? Jesus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean... Who's going to pay for it. And then you talk, <laughs> then you talk about costs, right? So, you know, it's like, you know, uh, domestic violence survivor, uh, female, in her thirties, uh, single mom with two kids separated from her abusive spouse. Uh, he's a threat and, um, she decides to go out and get a gun to protect herself because he's that much of a threat. She's got a restraining system, but he's violated that multiple times, landed in jail. Maybe now he's out. And she laments on Facebook that, uh, she's scared. Um, and maybe, maybe she's scared. Maybe it's her PTSD acting up from the previous domestic violence and some, concerned third party out of a goodness of heart says, Hey, I'm the sister in law, which qualifies as family. 
I'm going to file an application <laughs> to restrict her from her gun, which is then going to protect her from the abusive ex. It's like, well, now you've just created another victim. Dot yep. gov. Like what, how do you, how do you substantiate yeah. that? So it's a, it's a big problem. Can you, can, um, and maybe this is Michael or, or you, Jake, but can, can one of you, uh, elaborate a little bit on the New York law? Cause I, I don't know if my, my IQ is just low today, but I wasn't following exactly what the law was and what was going on with that, with that woman. Yeah, Jake, if you want to hand it, I mean, take it. it do. Well, I, I wouldn't do it justice. Honestly, uh, the best way to do it is to listen to our podcast with Sandy Richardson because um, she is intimately familiar with it. But essentially, the New York safe law empowers practitioners of any kind to um, to <laughs> add to a registry a person's name whom they deem unsafe. And the time lag, and this is where it really becomes a problem, is there's no there's no exigency, there's no urgency. The time lag between filing that complaint, which can be anonymous, uh, and application into the database can be quite a while. And so you you may go seek help. And in Sandy's case, it's really sinister because they faked the records. Um, I, they didn't fake it. They lied. Uh, they, they assessed her for suicidal ideation. She declined, checked it anyway. Um, but then they, they filed this thing, said this person should not be able to access firearms. And then many, many months later, she went to apply for a pistol permit purchase or something. And they're like, you're not allowed to buy this. And she's like, why wouldn't I be? And they're like, oh, because the thing in the database, that's what spooks everybody. And they don't yeah. know how it got there. And she she just happened to have, you know, a belly full of fire and wanted to go track it down. Her story is her story. Her story will scare people out of therapy. And I and we had her on specifically to share. This is the exception. New York is the exception, not the rule. You know, she she openly says in the in the interview, she says, I would not advise people to get help in New York. I would advise them to go over the border. And it's like, that's crazy. Like, how could we how could we have arrived at this point where people are literally taking their own lives because they can't access care because they're afraid of having their rights or their job taken from them? It's like, are you yeah. really helping or harming at this point? Yeah, I'll give another example. Um first started the organization like you know we were making these posts of, don't be afraid to go get help and i remember one uh gentleman reached out and he said uh don't do it in york and i you know immediately i wanted to talk to him because i was like okay I, I need to hear the story and he he told the story about when he was like god he was like 18 or 19 he was in a relationship with a girl and um she broke up with him and uh you know it was devastating for him and, and he started to have, you know, have behavior that he was, he was concerned about. Cause he's like, I started cutting, you know, things that were making him like relieve the pain. Um, but he did the right thing and he eventually went to go get help and talk to a therapist. And while doing that, he didn't realize, you know, that's five years later when he went to go buy a gun that that stuck with him and he was denied. And, and, and it was funny because he was like, I would never thought of hurting her. You know, I loved her. And he's like, I never really thought of hurting myself. I wanted to stop it before it, it got darker. You know, so they basically punished him for something that, you know, he did the right thing for. And that's, you know, that's the problem with the state of New York. Yeah. And it, and is this the only state that's like that as far as you guys know? 
I would say New York is the worst, right, Jake? Yeah. yeah. New Jersey's tough. Uh, Massachusetts is pretty tough, you know. Yeah, it, New York's the only one that has that safe act that basically says, well, they have a registry, right? They have a, they have a you have to, <laughs> their Second Amendment infringements are, it's a weird thing about the Second Amendment that I've learned over time because I was never, I mentioned earlier, I wasn't really part of the gun culture, but I've been a lifelong gun owner. Um, and the backstory is I was raised by a family full of cops. We live in Nevada. We go hunting. But that was it. It was a tool for a job, the job being police or the job being shoot the animal. And um, so I was never in the culture until I joined up. These guys fears gun. Um, now I'm like, holy cow, like this is a <laughs> this is this is a diverse crowd, like in every way possible. You could define that word diverse. And what I'm learning is that um, so the Second Amendment points to Congress. And so states' rights can infringe all they want, really. And that's where the lawsuits yeah. come in. And, and that's something I've learned over the last few years. But anyway, uh, states like New Jersey and New York, they require you to apply for a permit to even purchase a gun or carry a gun or own a gun. So it's um, other states don't have that. So what they do in order to apply for the permit to own a gun is they require you to waive certain rights like access to your medical records. Washington state just did this. They, they, uh, I don't know if they passed it, but they were entertaining in their legislature, um, a waiver. So it's like, if you want to apply <laughs> so crazy, like you're applying for your God given right. It's like, who are you government? You, you are supplanting God at this point. It's so weird. Um, but if you want to apply for this, this permit to then purchase a gun, you have to check a box that says uh, you have access to all my medical records. And so it's like, it's not just mental health. It's like, did you, if .gov decides to go pawing through your medical chart and sees that you had an ACL repair in 2012 uh, and they think that maybe your knee just isn't capable of, uh, you know, stabilizing to hold that pistol, they could deny you. It's like totally, totally arbitrary, totally, totally random. So yes, New York is probably the worst. Uh, and it's only because their current system says there are barriers to access this right to self-defense. I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I just want to remind people that we we have just undergone two years of medical tyranny and uh, with, with a helping, a heaping helping of uh, irrational rules. I think Fauci admitted finally that the lockdown was really about getting people to vaccinate, not for any medical reason so they are definitely willing to twist uh any kind of rules or interpret them in whatever way they want to achieve political ends so the the idea that they might say oh your acl surgery makes you unfit to hold the firearm it's like it sounds ridiculous but uh it, you but know, if it meets the goal sure. yeah sure. Um, so i i want to i want to I don't think we can talk about guns and mental health uh, and and with without really touching on mass shootings, uh, especially school shootings, which are you know in the news a lot, but mass shootings generally. Um, I I've I've heard conflicting things about um, the environmental background of some of the, the the shooters involved. I I sometimes I hear oh they're they're mostly from broken fatherless homes, but then when I look into it, I'm not really sure that that's true to a greater extent than the rest of the population is from broken homes. Um, I'm just not sure. Um, I know there's a lot of SSRIs involved. What do you guys, you know, what is your assessment of what's going on? Is it, is it, 
are we just hearing about it more and it's actually not any worse of a problem or and, and even so what's what are the causes what what how do we address things like what david hall would like to address which is school shooting right he runs around <laughs> you know i mean granted I in the low yeah, IQ way at this point, I don't even know if David Hogg wants to address that. I think he's just too wrapped up his own ego. But um, I, I want to kick to Mike to talk about the mass shooting thing because that was one of the the pivotal moments in the in the seminal uh, area of you know cre the WTTA's creation and why we didn't go that direction. Yeah. So in the very beginning, you know, what I really wanted to do is was find a way to stop the next mass shooter. Um, you know, obviously wanted to have some some aspect of suicide prevention, but it wasn't the main focus. And it was really interesting because every time I would turn around and tell somebody in the firearms community what I wanted to do, they were all like, yeah, do that. like that's that's awesome. Like, let's try to stop the next mass shooters. It's got to be possible. Right. Um, but it wasn't until I started sitting down with some of the most brilliant minds in the mental health field. And, and I didn't I was making phone calls and talking to people that I probably had no business getting through to if that makes sense, because I was super naive. Um, so I was talking to just people that I look up to in, in, in the mental health side of things and, and researchers, and they were all pushing me back to suicide prevention. And even Mental Health America, the vice president, uh, Debbie Plotnick, was pushing me back to, to suicide prevention. I kept saying, look, that's great. I want to do that too, but I really want to stop the next mass shooter. And they, every one of them almost said it, the same thing. Finding the next mass shooter is like finding a needle in a haystack. By the that way, Mike, like, I... I, I have our uh, graphic pulled up if I can share my screen a little bit later. So, oh, so I'll yeah. share the stats. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. But so like that was a, that was a huge you know, pivotal turning point because I was literally asking these people, like, what is some of the outreach that we could do that maybe prevent this stuff? And they didn't have the answer for me. Um, so it was a very depressing day when I came to the reality that, you know, finding the next mass shooter is finding a needle in a stack and there's no such thing as the movie minority report. Um, but it was kind of a blessing because what it did force me to do is look back inside of the firearms industry and say, OK, well, what can we do? Right. Anyone could just donate money to Mental Health America or any of these other organizations. But what can we do as the firearms community to kind of address these things? And the concept was um, cast a huge wide net, focus on suicide prevention. And maybe you catch some of these mass shooters early enough if you cast that wide net by providing you know, resources and things like that, which you know, it's all anecdotal, right? Um, for me, because, you know, we don't track everybody. We don't, we're not huge in like, let's find the data. We're, we're more like, let's, let's link people up to get the help they need when they're in crisis without fear of consequence. But we right. do get people that share stories with us that say, Hey, I was in a really dark place and I used your, uh, your mental health screening link and, uh, you know, went to go seek help and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's where the shift was, uh, because, Finding next mass shooter, like just for the people that are listening, um, you know, when you try to apply it to mental health or you could take 10 people that have schizophrenia, hand them a firearm, and they never hurt anybody or bipolar disorder. They never hurt anybody. I could come home and catch my wife in bed with my best friend. Snap. Right. I have no mental health diagnosis ever. Uh, so, you know, you can't just pin it on. These people are mentally ill and we need to blame them and we need to focus on that. Now, granted, I think everybody that walks into a school and, shoots something's wrong right um yeah. but the problem is is that we can't we can't tell the future and you can't just tell by looking at somebody yeah and you know and to your point of, of asking that question like what's the background of these these people um a lot of times you you'll see in the news 
reports like had no mental health issues, right? No, no background of, uh, you know, treatment or whatever. It's like, well, yeah, it's cause they never made it. And you know, even if you do some sort of dissective analysis of, you know, figuring out who had what and when and where it's like, you, you end up with this conclusion of no diagnosis, mental illness is not involved. It's like, well, I I'm here to push back and say, yeah, it, it takes a special kind of person to plot out and scheme to go shoot up a school or a movie theater uh, or a Route 91 concert in Las Vegas in October 1 of 2017, which hits personal close to home to us because we live in Nevada. Um, just because they didn't get a diagnosis rendered doesn't mean they don't meet criteria for mental illness. What, what are we discussing here? You know, uh, what we're discussing is how do we intervene? And what Mike's alluding to is getting opportunities to people who may need them to prevent that from happening. And just because it doesn't make the news doesn't mean it's not important. And that's, uh, if you, if I may, I'd like to share this, uh, slide here. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, so I've got, uh, screen sharing might be good on two computers, two monitors. Okay. So I'm going to here window tab. Okay. So here's a uh, here's a, a part of a presentation that we do. This is a Venn diagram, and for the listening audience who's not watching on the on the video, picture three circles in your head: uh, one very large, one medium sized, one very 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 tiny. Uh, in fact, it's so tiny that we had to blow it up on here because it wouldn't be we couldn't make it small enough so it'd be visible. And those Venn the, those circles in the Venn diagram: the very large one is suicides. Then it overlaps with gun deaths. And then overlapping gun deaths is mass shootings. And the mass shooting circle is very, very tiny. And we can't make it small enough to be visible to be to scale because it would be like less than one pixel. And then I uh, have applied some data here. This is CDC data from 2018. I have to update it 2020. But uh, just to go through this real quick. So mm -hmm. all firearm deaths. 39,740. So basically 40,000 40, firearm deaths. All suicides, 48,344. So then we look at so firearm I, homicides. I just want to yeah, clarify, that's like a, I didn't realize the vast majority of suicides are firearm they, Is that they, what that means? They are. Uh, so okay. so 50, 50 and a half percent in 2018, it's actually gone up from there. It's about 52% now of suicides are by firearm and 66 percent of firearm deaths are suicide so it says 61.4 percent on the screen but it's actually like 65.8 now with 2020 data so it's actually nosed up from there so we, we basically say two-thirds of firearm deaths all firearm deaths homicides negligence they're suicides so two-thirds of firearm deaths are suicide so we go back to all firearm deaths forty thousand a year give or take yep. Um, two thirds of those are suicides. So the reason these psychologists were pushing Mike toward suicide prevention is because that's where you move the needle. You know, we jump down to mass shootings in 2018. This happens to be, you know, this, these data that I'm showing here, 80, eight zero, which is two tenths of a percent of all firearm deaths were mass shootings. But what makes the news mass shootings? Cause they're sexy. They, you know, sell clicks yeah. and all that stuff. So, um, I don't know how to not share my screen and go back here. Um, so 
it doesn't matter what the number is. Like the number can't ever be high enough on mass shootings, school shootings. Um, uh, what, what do you like? Depending on whether you qualify mass shootings as four or more, six or more, twenty or more, it doesn't matter. You'll never get to twenty-five thousand. Yeah. Never. Like it's always going to be in the triple digits, uh, and and the low triple digits, like below two hundred, below one hundred and fifty, usually. So all mass shootings, all combined, regardless of how you define them, you're talking one hundred twenty to one hundred fifty max per year. And you're like you're going to take away a bunch of guns from law-abiding citizens to prevent mass shootings when really the the issue is suicides and the connection to suicides is mental illness because people typically don't take their lives if they're not struggling it's not like hey you know it's a good idea in a clear thought on a random blue day <laughs> i'm gonna go i'm gonna go eat a bullet like no nobody talks like that you're 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 in massive pain you're massively struggling so what's keeping them from care perception that they're going to get tattled on or that I have a bat phone to the government that I'm going to come and send the deputies to their door and take their rights away. And those things aren't true. And if they are true, you have terrible clinicians doing a terrible job. Um, we need to fight that. We need to push back against some of that misinformation and maybe even purposeful disinformation um, and and offer the opportunity for people to to say, hey, I want to I want to reconcile my marriage. I want to keep my kid from getting bullied on the playground. I want to I want to learn proper storage, which is one of the things we talk about too. So, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I could rant forever about this stuff because I'm passionate about it, but I'm gonna muzzle for now, right now. Yeah, I mean, so when Jake and I speak at whether it's a college or in front of like an organization that deals with suicide prevention, we always use that number because uh, we talked about Mandalay Bay right down the street from me. You know that 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 night it was 59 people died, I think, including the shooter, right? And we always say like 67 people die a day from suicide by firearm so we have a mass shooting every day that mm. the media just does they can't sell ad space for it they don't get right. they can't get you know 30 days of you know news coverage uh out of and it's just not sexy and that's that you know i think it's important that we always draw that back when uh, especially when we like like for example we went up to san jose state and we were speaking at an event that had moms and man action there um but it was great because they let us speak first and we were <laughs> We were able to talk about these things to this this young crowd of college kids to say, like, look, this is where the focus needs to be. You know, suicide by firearms is a huge issue. Uh, the mass shooting, you know, it's an issue, right? But it's it's one that when you compare it, it's 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 not as big of an issue as suicide by firearm. Now, I don't I don't know the stats and I don't know if you guys do, but I assume one of the reasons that we like to ignore suicides is it's mostly adult men. And we don't. Yeah, I have a slide for that, too. I just closed the tab, yeah, unfortunately. But <laughs> but yeah, it's it, it is. It's it's actually a white adult males, um, which is, you know, these days we're supposed to I don't know self-flagellate or something. Yeah, the suicide um, lumber is too low for that. Yeah. That's, a... <laughs> that's dark um but <laughs> i'm just repeating what i hear on yeah. twitter man uh, yeah, hey yeah i know. know i know it's it, it 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 sucks um interesting thing though um so we had some some data come out i've been i've been i've been loud about uh children's mental health and not masking because it interferes with emotional cognitive psychological social development and 
and we don't need to be covering children's faces because that's how they learn to interact and so forth. Um, well, lo and behold, we ended up, and it's not just masking, it's it's distance learning, it's all the stuff that happened during 2020, but 2021, end of 2021, um, we finally got our suicide data for 2020, and everybody high-fived and cheered and said, suicides went down, lockdowns worked, and it's like, yeah, dig a little deeper into the data, dude. The, the reason that suicides went down in 2020 was because the volume is adult white males, most of whom are employed, working, whatever. And they ended up retreating and they have resources typically because we're talking about the, the well-to-do or the people with, with access. But who went up in suicide is children and specifically minority children. Ethnic wow. minority children demographics all skyrocketed. American Indian, Hispanic, Black, Asian, every one of them went up. But they're so small of a number in the aggregate that it that the actual overall suicide rate went down. And it took, uh, thank God, NBC did a great article about it. Um, and it just so happened they published this article one day before we went up and taught a, a, a training in, in Oregon. And I had to re rework the whole slideshow because uh, it, it mattered. And I said, look, we can't ignore youth suicides. And so at our core, we're a suicide prevention organization, but we want this mental health stuff to ripple out so that people also improve their lives, you know, and stop, you know, diving into pill bottles and alcohol bottles and so forth. Um, but to, to, to hang our hat on quote unquote suicide rates went down in 2020, the lockdowns weren't that bad is completely wholly disingenuous to the most vulnerable populations we have on the planet. And, yeah. and th those are the people we want to speak to and say, look, you, you can come in for care. You can, you can have access to this stuff. Don't be afraid of it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a big deal to me that we're just kind of like breezing over this, uh, this this whole youth suicide youth mental health crisis which is an actual crisis is not a talking point like i work in schools the youth are uh, they're in bad shape oh um, but again you know something i yeah. could rant about forever no i mean i i'm i'm a, a father of a 12 year old and i see it i mean i see the i see the impact it's had and you know i this might be counterintuitive or maybe this is a, a faux pas to say to someone who's actually trained in, in psychology and therapy, but I, I really wish that we would think about suicide um, as something that's a spectrum that goes from like a little death, not in the French way, a little death, <laughs> but like, uh, uh, like self-destructive behavior to actually murder because you can murder yourself over the course of 40 years by like ruining Obesity. your life, taking yeah. drugs. Yeah. Whatever it is. You, you can be and that's just that's a it's a it's a form of suicide it's not it's psychological suicide and it takes longer to 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 actually off yourself doing it but it's um and i'm not comparing i'm not saying oh, overdoses you know, the same overdoses but, yeah um overdoses have skyrocketed uh we we cracked a hundred thousand overdoses uh in uh, 2021 like that's never been done before um single single vehicle uh, rollovers, you know, or uh, single vehicle mm -hmm. collisions or single, single passenger. It's like, yeah, I don't know. Did he really lose control or right. Maybe yeah, he like, just didn't yeah. care? 
He got he was right. so depressed. He wasn't intentional. And those so don't go into that call anymore. Right. Yeah. Um it, yeah, and and that and that's that's worth noticing because when people lose hope and the, and despair creeps in, it's a slow burn sometimes. Uh mm -hmm. we we tend to say, you know, Mike and I say this all the time, like, you know, suicide is often an impulsive act and often it is. And often it's also not. Often it's what you just described. And I love, love, love. I mean, I hate to glorify it, but it's like, it's such a cool concept. Suicidal ideation as a spectrum. And I, and I scale things when I, when I teach suicidal intervention and whatnot, you know, I go scale of one to 10, how suicidal are you? What are your, what are your risks? You know, that yeah. sort of thing. Um, but broadly, I think when you were talking to an individual, where are you? you know, where were you yesterday? Where are you three years from now? Where are you three years ago? I think that's, I, I think it's brilliant. You got to give yourself credit for that. You should write something and trademark. You it. just gave me credit. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, because I, you know, I just look at my own psychology. I don't want to TMI the audience, but I don't think I'm unusual. I've absolutely had moments where I've thought about suicide. I haven't like, yeah. I haven't uh, taken real steps in, in any way maybe because my life has yeah. been easy enough for or whatever and it hasn't been stressful enough but you know i went through teenage years and had heartbreak and had lots of things happen and had you know the hormones going and there was plenty of times when when it like that was a thought that crept in and um you know it's just i almost i almost feel like it's just an extension of increased risky behavior, right? Like you can go from like, I don't really care. So I'm going to keep eating cheeseburgers, which, okay, that might kill you eventually. Um, but not soon. You can go from there to like, I don't really care. So I'm going to play Russian roulette to, I don't really care. So I'm going to play Russian roulette with all six chambers loaded. Like there's not re like that is, it's the same mental dissatisfaction. Yeah, it's, it's why, like. why are you playing Russian roulette regardless of the, the, the time? frame right. right like what it what's what's the issue beneath that you know and to, and to your point about the thoughts like it's one of the fun exercises i do when i'm teaching cops is i go show of hands of anybody who's ever been suicidal and i put my hand in the air and and of course nobody raises their hand because it's a bunch right. of cops in training <laughs> and i was like all right so i know ha 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 and i joke about it and i said but if you've ever considered what the world would be like if you weren't there that's suicidal ideation on the lowest level mm-hmm you, you consider self-deletion at some point. How would life go on? How would my wife feel? How would my kids feel? What would my parents think? You know, um, that's suicidal ideation. Then all of a sudden it's like, it's safe here, by the way. Like I've, I've talked to your command staff. They're cool. This is a mental health training. Like, and the, and the hands start to go up and I'm like, see this to think about one's own death prematurely is human behavior. If you were a human, you have had these thoughts. So let's not, let's not pretend like it's something weird. It's not. It's yeah. very, very common. It's so common that literally everybody who's ever walked the planet has thought about it. Yep. Yep. I'm, Mike's yeah, got I'm something to say too. He's, he's leaning in there. No, 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 It's funny because we like yesterday I went through this thing where it just hit me in the middle of the day. It wasn't anything to do with suicide, but I, I was starting to think like, oh man, I need to make sure my wife has the updated accounts in case something ever happens to me. Right. I'm getting I to have, that yes. age, <laughs> you yes. know, where I'm like, Wait a second. What if I die in a car accident and there's I know that there's money here, but my wife doesn't have access to you know what I mean? It's things like that where yeah. I'm starting to think about like, you know. Yeah, no, I I also had that just the other day and it was about there's about the safe. I was like, can she get in the safe? Does she know? Wait, can she get access to the crypto? 
Does she know how to access the crypto if I die? <laughs> right, like, right. Like, yeah. one of the things Does she have those 12 words memorized? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like so uh absolutely, absolutely. I think that's a that's a real thing. Um I, I just one other thing I want to add, you probably don't have these stats either, but uh, and maybe this is a question for John Lott uh, and and not you guys, but um, of those gun deaths, what percentage are legal gun owners? The, the legal gun owner statistic is something I've never been able to find. <laughs> you know, even when you look at reports of crime, you know, usually it's the first question you think of is like, hey, the article didn't say whether you own the gun illegally or legal. You know, it's just one of those yeah. things. I don't know. I I, I don't okay. know what the percentage is. Well, you um, know, something something worth saying, though, is that what we're trying to push our organization and a few others, um, 2AO is doing this, um, you know, a handful of other places are saying change your language away from safe to responsible when it comes to storage. So. We're not, mm. I, and I'm trying to push that into clinicians' heads, but also the the firearms community is saying, stop saying you're storing safe or safely, because um, to you, safely, you know, store stored gun may be loaded and chambered under the couch cushion in the living room in case ISIS kicks in your window at 3 a.m. And to me, with your knowing that you have an angsty 12 year old who just got his heart broken, that's not safe at all. And so what we're trying to do is redefine responsible storage to mean preventing unauthorized access. So if you authorize somebody to have access to your firearms, great. If you don't, and that includes the person who smashes while you're out of town and steals your stuff, they don't have authorized access. You should probably prevent that from happening insofar as you can. Uh, and that includes the neighbor's kids and you even in the time of crisis. Uh, so if that means changing the lock or whatever. And we've got some really cool technology that Mike can talk about working with safe companies, but changing the language from safe, which is very mercurial and it's very subjective. And it's also just been watered down over the course of the last two years. Uh, stay home, stay safe, you know, wear a mask, stay safe. It's like, I'm the safest person on the planet. I got nine guns staged across the home. It's like, you also have four kids. <laughs> Maybe that's not safe. Um, and then, uh, you know, changing the word from accidental with regard to, gun discharges and you know things you didn't intend to negligent because it both those yes. words invite a personal accountability and responsibility uh i'm just going to interject this here i trained under jeff cooper before he died i don't know if you guys know who jeff cooper was but colonel cooper was one of the the fathers of the modern technique of the pistol he was an old uh marine and uh he used to when i when i trained he was old you know 20 years ago when i when i when i trained under him and uh he used to he used to yell about the negligence. It's it's negligence. There's no such thing as an accidental discharge. It's negligence. It's only negligence. Um, you know, and to your point about safety, you know, at the end of the day, he didn't like safeties on firearms. He was the kind of guy that would take duct tape and and wrap it around the grip so that the grip safety was disabled. Um, and he used to also say, This, this is your safety. Right here, your finger. Um, because it's up to you, but, but I, I really like this idea of focusing on responsibility rather than safety because safety is, um, in all aspects of life, uh, it doesn't exist in reality. There is no perfect safety. If like you getting up in the morning, stepping outside your house, <laughs> like takes laying in bed is risky. Everything you do has some risk, 
right? So that could collapse. Right, right. It's about risk mitigation. My wife's terrified that the tree outside is going to fall on our house in into our master bedroom. So for her, it's like a big risk. That's you know. You 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 need to be more concerned about that thing catching fire. (laughs) No, that it's funny you say that though. That actually happened. Uh, when I was in high school, my, my mother and I, we moved to uh, the state of Washington. And one day my, I was upstairs and my mom was downstairs and she was doing the dishes and she was looking out and we had a big tree in the backyard. And she was like, that looks like it's falling. It is falling. And it fell through our house and split it oh, like wow. butter on the top floor. Um, Jeez. so it's, if I was sitting there with your wife and we were all having beers, I would be like, that happened to my my no one was yeah, you're never that. you just disinvited yourself <laughs> from ever hanging you're out. never coming over <laughs> split it like butter man <laughs> no, it was you should room. remove that tree no we had to we actually had to move into one of those like uh you know extended stays while the insurance company I get, the house. yeah it was crazy it was it was one of those wow. situations but i always laugh because my mom said that you know it was like one of those things in a movie where it's like that's not happening it's not happening <laughs> oh it is falling and it's coming right down on top of yeah me. what's the likelihood that that would happen it's just uh, i keep telling her it's just it's, it's not gonna happen it's, you know <laughs> maybe maybe i'm wrong so i i i want to actually there's one thing i meant to ask you at the beginning just to clarify for our audience so they know where you guys are coming from um Many people in the audience are a bit like me, and they're kind of, we'll say, Second Amendment absolutists who think that uh, actually everyone in the world has a right to own whatever firearm they want, and whether governments recognize it or not, is that's what the government does. Uh, are you guys? Are you are you Second Amendment absolutists? Do you think the government should be involved in regulating firearm ownership in some way? Like, are there cases where? You say, no, you, you can't have a firearm, and the government should be able to enforce that. One. Are you unmuted? One, two, three. No. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, um, no it, it's, it, that's, that's one of those really interesting, cool, like, gray area think tank topics, right? You can, we can, we can debate this stuff in, in certain forums, but in practicality, no. Like who who is going to set the line, and how and why and how and 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 when you get into, I lo- I love talking about this stuff and I'm about to go on a tangent. And I hope I don't bore everybody, Please. but um, so in my mind, you've got you've got God given rights. If we if we believe in that and we believe in like sovereignty and we believe in things like um, you know divine creation and so forth. Uh, those are enumerated in the the Bill of Rights and uh, and the and the Declaration of Independence, and we say uh, these things cannot be taken; they should be protected by government, not not infringed. Right? Government is there to protect these rights: free speech, being mm-hmm. able to take our property, defend ourselves, defend ourselves against tyrants, that kind of thing. Okay, so when we get into a discussion about like where is the Where's the limitation on those things, right? Are you allowed to shout fire in a crowded theater just to cause panic and chaos because you're a sick individual who wants to see people trampled? And I actually have an answer to, to be, that one, by the way. That yes. one's very simple. It depends who owns the theater. It's their rules. The end. Very, very libertarian of you. Um, <laughs> but the but, yeah, but the, but the idea is that like we can have those discussions in academic quarters, but the practical application 
means that we're we as human beings are appointing some sort of committee or set of individuals who would then be tantamount to the divine who gave us the rights. And then we're going right. to have a have a fight over that. It's like, oh, you're fighting with God. Like now you've self-appointed as God. And I don't know if we if we need to go there. That's a, that's an ethical discussion. Biologists have it. Uh, you know, mental health practitioners have it. We we have ethical constructs in place. In my um, in my profession, for example, there's five precepts that beget all the ethical codes, and they are autonomy, justice, fidelity, non-maleficence, and beneficence. And I ripped through those real quick, so I'm going to define them. Uh, autonomy is respect for the individual to choose for him or herself uh, his or her own decisions, behaviors, choices, outcomes. Um, justice act on somebody's behalf if they cannot for themselves you know do the right thing fidelity honor your contract on be faithful to what you agreed to non-maleficence don't hurt anybody and then beneficence help somebody the problem is they all hang in tension they're all supposed to be equal and i think that we've got this like sense within us that we need to help the poor and we need to care for those who can't care for themselves so justice tends to rise a little bit but every time you do that autonomy takes a step down and I have a whole video about this. If you want to watch me opine on it, you can. But the idea is that you got to be very careful about what you step on. Am I stepping on non-maleficence, don't hurt anybody, in the effort to help somebody? Am I am I hurting someone by helping? And, and that may take the form of like, I'm in a, I, I recognize that you're in a bad place. You're not aware of it. I am. All of us are. Your family members are. So we're going to take your car keys away, Grandpa. Because you might hurt yourself or somebody else. Like we can have that ethical conversation in abstract or in specific, but to make it generally applicable is I, I think it's it's wise if we just acknowledge that and not put it into law, which is mutually binding upon all. So I, it's it's something I'm very passionate about. It's something, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I very rarely do I get to have that conversation outside of like text message correspondence with some very close friends where it's like, yeah, 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 man, let's talk about this. Uh, so it'd be cool to have a, have a forum or a symposium even about that. I mean, I love, I love the philosophy stuff. I mean, I do a show every Wednesday night uh, about philosophy and m mostly about philosophy. Uh, so I love the ethical discussions. I'm, I, I'm down to have those kind kind of discussions anytime you want. But I mean, I think one thing that I'm, one thing you have to be careful with, right, is if you if you have these these natural rights, if you have uh, individual sovereignty, um, and you and you're proposing to put a, uh, someone in charge of of or giving someone the power to compromise that, uh, in some cases, you're assuming that whatever mechanism you're giving them, uh, the, you know, whatever mechanism that person is is placed in power over is assures that it's a that person is good and makes better decisions than you do and that's a you know that's a tough call on it and especially when you know you look out at the world right now 51 percent of the people voting yep. for something doesn't really make it good that should be pretty obvious to i think everyone on both sides of the aisle i would imagine but uh, I want to hear Mike's uh, answer as to whether or not he's an absolutist, because I know he's <laughs> he's got a take. Well, you know, so growing up in in basically Asbury Park, New Jersey, and then San Francisco, California, you know, I grew up. I didn't grow up around guns. That's why people start calling me the ungun gun guy because, like, that, I didn't give myself that nickname. Uh, it was just people were always like, "You don't act like a gun guy." Um, I became a gun guy 
but when I first got into the industry, I didn't, you know, I didn't necessarily know those answers, right? Because I was kind of like, okay, like we sell handguns. Why can't we give up ARs? Like, what's the big deal? You know what I mean? Because I had only, you know, my knowledge and my family didn't teach me anything. And I got the job through nepotism. They didn't teach me about rights. You know, they were like, sell guns, <laughs> you know, and I, and sure. I was naive. Very I didn't practical. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was something that I I picked up over time because when my, my first introduction to people are like, shall not be infringed probably from my cold dead hands, you know, I was kind of like, God, you're coming off kind of like an, an asshole. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, then it was other people that kind of took me aside and it was like, oh, okay, why? And I was able to ask those questions without people like, you know, I didn't feel like they were going to explode on me. Right. Because it's very passionate. It's very, you know, by, it's, by the way, that was my experience when we went to Arizona in 2019, when I first, I said, I wasn't familiar with the gun culture. We went to the uh, gun rights policy conference and I got to ask some of those very touchy questions. And it was like, Oh, I'd love to tell you about that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, how do you not know? It was warm and welcoming. And I, I love, that's why I say, I love the diversity of the gun community. It's, it's they're, they're nice people. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I find myself always, you know, especially when I have a, a debate with somebody and I can tell that they're anti-gun, you know, I don't understand why most people are anti-gun. You know, everybody has their reasons, right? Some politicians, they, they run on that and, you know, that's what they're looking for. They pander to that crowd. But um, I found that most people that are anti-gun or at least hate guns, like usually they don't want people to die. And somehow they're associating the gun with the death, right? They're not looking right they're, they're not going for root cause mitigation and trying to look deeper. Um, but I always give people an out, you know, I'm like, look, I'll have this conversation with you. I'm not going to get emotional. Uh, you can ask me anything, but it's going to go one or two ways. And it just works like this every time. I mean, you're going to just tell me at the very end, you just hate guns. You don't want to see people die. And that's going to be you're out of this conversation. Or you're going to say, I have to rethink the way I feel about these things. And, and it's, it's, I've had it go both ways, but it's always one or the, the two. Right. Um, yep. And and it's something that I had to learn, you know, that I'm, I'm an absolutist. I didn't I wasn't always, you know, I questioned those things, you know, sure. but now I look at it and I'm like, wow, the founding fathers, man, they that's the closest thing to like seeing into the future. You know, when when they made the Second Amendment, I was like, that is brilliant to me, you know. Um, yeah, but that's where I am. And we get we get asked that a lot. Right. Because if you put mental health and guns you know, together in the same sentence, you know, the probably from my cold dead hand guy, he's usually not going to take time to understand who we are and where we come from. Right. He's going to emotionally react, like stop blaming the gun. Um, so yeah, yeah he's going to assume that you want some kind of restrictions based mm -hmm. on mental health. Yeah. Right. And you know, yeah, turns Jake, Jake and I have to have meetings with people that we sit down and we talk that we're literally focused on let's find solutions. And we know damn well that they, they would ban if they could, or, you know, they support those sure. things, but you know, we're, we're trying to get something done um, while people are dying and people are miserable. Uh, we're just trying to get something done and find some root cause mitigation instead of, you know, the same old things like restriction. And we sat, we, we went and spoke of, you know, I mentioned earlier, we spoke at that event in San Jose and it's, you know, what they want to stop the laws that they want to pass will have no effect on what, on right. that you know and it's just it's an eye roll because it's just like oh god people think that you know this is going to help and it's not and then it's going to be like okay well what else should we restrict or you know how far do you go and you know. yeah yeah i mean it's it's uh 
the war on guns will will work in the same way that the war on drugs has worked in which mm-hmm. case all the criminals have all the cocaine it's freely available you just have to be willing to be a like break the law to get it like okay that's we're, that's how it works we're heading that way toward with healthcare like it's yes. it's it's getting that restrictive where it's like only the people with means <laughs> yep okay yeah i don't know if we want to do that we're going to have a pretty unhealthy society yeah, well, I mean, that, there's so much broken about the healthcare system. I think we could do an entire other show about how everything that's. <laughs> I'm, well, you know, you know my number. I mean, you you can reach out to me. I'm here. <laughs> I have some opinions. Yeah, no, I. Uh, you don't seem like the guy who has strong opinions. That strikes me as odd. Um, <laughs> yeah, I waffle. I, I do want to. I do want to talk a little. Just you know, before we. I know I've I've kept you guys for a while, but I don't know how much longer you have. But I do want to get all afternoon. To, yeah, we're fine. Okay, good. I want to talk about Walk the Talk America and what specifically you guys are doing. And if you think that you like, how do you measure progress? Um, and what what steps are you taking to give? It sounds like you're, you're, you're if, correct me if I'm wrong, but your strategy is we're going to cast a wide net to help as many people with mental health issues in the community as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jake's holding up a card. Uh, I got the card right here. Uh this, this started, right? Uh, once again, I, I told you, like, going into the industry uh, saying, why can't we address certain things? Or why can't we, why do we just, like, stand on the other side of the room when it comes to mental health and say, well, they need to figure it out. So one of the first things that I wanted to do was, was introduce these free and anonymous mental health screenings that are powered by Mental Health America into the industry. So we, I created this band, right? I tell a little background story about the band. It's really cool. So when I was like super depressed that the mental health community didn't have all the answers and they didn't have the outreach. And I thought, okay, you know, all we have to do is come up with the money because if you read any of their position papers or anything like that, I always talk about funding, you know, our funding has been cut. And if we have this funding, we could do this. Well, this didn't really exist. Right. I I think they were just going after money. Um, But, you know, I was sitting there going, okay, well, what are some of the things we could do? My daughter comes into my office and she's like, uh, hey, Dad, I, I suffer. I think I suffer from anxiety, and uh, I grew up from a very, you know, old school Italian family in New Jersey. That if I would have said that aloud, like to anybody, <laughs> that that the answer would have been, "I'll give you something to have anxiety." Yeah, I, guess I was going to say, <laughs> I know that answer, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, and keep it moving. Um, but but for me, it was a teachable moment for her. You know, it's like, uh, hey, you know, the organization that daddy's working with, they have a mental health screening. If you go on their website, you know, I said, go on. There's one for anxiety. Just answer it honestly. No one cares. <laughs> no one's showing up at your door. And I left it at that. A couple of days later, she comes downstairs and she's like, hey, dad, I took the thingy. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? She's like, you know, the thing for anxiety. I said, oh, how did it go? And she smiled. She goes, I only have mild anxiety. And uh I feel a lot better about it. And I said, good, good. It shows you, you know, ways to mitigate it when you feel like that. And she's yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said, oh, I'm going to give it to a couple of my friends in school. Tell them to go check it out. She walked off, you know, and I thought, oh, that's super cool. Like, how do I apply this to, to the gun industry? So, you know, we started off with this band concept and I was just passing them out at the guns, uh, at the gun shows. And uh, it was amazing. It was like weights were being lifted off of people's shoulders because they're like, they would want to tell their story. They'd sit at the booth and they'd want to tell their story to me. Um, 
So I took it a step further and I created this card because I was like, okay, what's the evolution of the band, right? Like getting this, this, I said, what if we put it in our firearms boxes? And, you know, it's funny is I, I didn't even realize at first I said, okay, like, is that going to cause a problem with the NRA or, you know, NSSF? Like that. So my, I, but I, I, I got to jump in because th there's people listening who may not have ever bought a brand new firearm and it, you get a box. Right? right. And it comes in the box and there's things in the box like warranty information and the federally required cable lock. Well, this flyer would go into that box. So you open up the box and here's this flyer. Right. And, and, about and mental health about mental health and free and anonymous mental health screenings. And it's funny because I think, you know, my 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 manufacturers are all foreign and they trusted me. So it's kind of like, hey, I want to put this in the box. You cool with it? And they're all like, oh, OK. <laughs> Right. So, you know, I was sitting there going, but I'm thinking, OK, this could this could get some blowback if people don't understand. Um, but it was the opposite. What we were doing, what we were we were taking calls from customers that were like, I just bought one of your guns and it has this this in there. Thank you. This is awesome. Like it, it was the complete wow. opposite of what I thought. Like I thought we'd even get calls where people were questioning our intentions. Like, why is this in there? Um, and it just, it, you know, then it was like, OK, now that I know that is not nothing bad happens. I'm going to go around and ask my peers, you know, guys I grew up with in the industry that own gun companies like arms Corps and high point, right? These are gun manufacturers. And I was just like, Hey, do you mind putting this in the box for me? There's what is it? Free and anonymous mental health screenings. I'm like, yeah, that's it's okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Let's do it. Right. So it's, I feel like the, the gun industry has always wanted to do something. I just think they never could put their finger on it. Right. And I couldn't either. Like this just happened from a chain of events, you know, from my daughter coming in. Um, but it, it kind of morphed into more of this, like, okay, let's get the industry behind this. Um, because I feel like if the industry comes forward and they, they say like, look, we're doing all these things and we're doing them ourselves. We're not going to have government tell us what to do. Right. We're going to put these on the screenings in the boxes of these guns. And then like, for example, arms Corps has the screening on the side of their ammunition boxes. Right. Like okay. that's, that's historic to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that, that you're doing it and people are falling in line saying, you know, this is a good idea. Cause think about it. If you're, if your company, your firearms company, your ammo company gets, gets drawn into a lawsuit of some sort. And, you know, obviously these lawsuits are trying to blame, you know, the item or the company for what an individual does. What better way to say like, Hey, we, we tried to get this person help. We gave them the options. We put it right there on the box. Yeah. Right. I, I think that speaks volumes. Uh, I think I think Absolutely. that speaks volumes to anybody, especially me. Like, right. I was a big believer when I owned Eagle Imports. Like, don't come to me with a problem unless you have a solution. I don't care if it's a silly solution. I need you to present the problem, which I probably see. Right. But I also need you to have a solution. And, and that's what I feel like we're doing with as the gun industry side. Right. Stepping up and saying, look, uh, you know, not only do we care, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're doing it better than you, <laughs> if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. We're putting it out there. So that's kind of the, the evolution of, of, of the firearm side. And I'll let Jake handle talking about, you know, the idea of what we're doing with the clinicians. Um, but, you know, if we can continue as an industry to, uh, to come to the table and say, look, we're, we're, we're handling the problem. You know what I mean? Um, I think that that's powerful. And I've seen it even with the, um, you know, the anti-gun side, <laughs> you know, like I it responded I well to this. Is that what you've seen? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Believe it or not, because, you know, it's so out of the box and people never thought like, 
I can, I remember like talking with a lawyer from Brady, you know, I run in all these circles now and I was in DC at one point and we were all having drinks at the bar and I was with the mental health America people. And, you know, naturally they, they have all different walks of life with them when it comes to, you know, firearm stuff. And uh, the guy from Brady, I, I was going to buy him a drink and he goes, he goes, before you buy me a drink, you should Google me. And uh, you know, I was kind of like, ah, I don't even, I don't get involved in those things. Okay. You know, whatever. And we just started talking. He was asking about Walk the Talk America. And this is in the beginning. This is in its infancy age uh, age of the, the organization. And I had the card on me. And I was telling him, like, yeah, hey, you know, we have gun companies that put this in the box. And I remember he was like, that's really cool. I never would have thought that gun companies would do it. Right. And that, that's what we're, yeah. what we're after. It's like, like, let's put the BS aside. Like, do you really want to save lives? Or are you just grandstanding? You want to, you know, take away guns? Usually what we do is we find out real quick when we talk to you where you really stand on it. So we've been well received by both sides, I'd say, you know, I mean, it, it what I like about it is it flies in the face of gun companies. There's a caricature that's been painted of gun companies as intentionally profiting off of death and not caring. I mean, that's the narrative like it's the they, they've got like an evil Mr. Burns character rubbing his hands and like, aha, how many people can more death is more money. Like that's that's how they imagine uh, gun companies. And at least that's how they're presented. And to a large extent, gun companies have been really on the defensive over my entire life. I mean, the, the, the idea I remember when uh, I think the court someone sued, I think it was Bryco Jennings for like a firearm they said it, it shouldn't have have the way it was designed you had to press the trigger to uh un, like take a round out of the chamber or something i don't know it was a it was a bad design it wasn't it wasn't the smartest design but um someone had you know shot someone else uh negligently they didn't follow the four rules so uh they were it was a negligent discharge and they were suing the gun manufacturer and i remember thinking to myself why does this have to anything to do with the the gun did what it was supposed to. It advertised that if you pointed at someone and pressed the trigger, a bullet will fly out the other end. Um, and and it did that. Why is this a problem? But they they've been coming. I mean, Sandy Hook. The the was it Remington that just Remington. lost a Remington. lost yep. there with the uh, they Sandy Hook lose. case. They settled. I mean, they settled. Oh, they but settled. it still sets a precedent. But, right, but it okay, wasn't. But, you know, did just so the the listeners understand, it wasn't necessarily Remington saying we want to settle because i've been involved in those lawsuits as an owner okay. of Eagle imports and there, it, what happens is it becomes part of the insurance company's decision on whether or not they want to pay out and end right. it or keep the fight going right so that makes that makes sense right and i so i just want to make it clear like there are many times i disagreed with my insurance company because we, we, as the owner of eagle i would always get thrown into somebody who was like at a wendy's and they were like on the toilet and they clearly got up and their gun fell. I'm using this as an example. And when your gun falls, you should never grab it. Let it hit the ground. Right. But your yeah. brain's going to try to say, like, stop it. But oh. what happens is, is like usually you'll grab the trigger and it'll go off. And this gentleman shot himself and he sued Bursa, which was under Eagle Imports, and said that the gun went off. Right. And But then, when, then I have to go hire all these experts to come in and show the court that the gun can't go off unless the trigger was pulled, <laughs> right? But the insurance company is going to make that decision on whether or not they want to keep paying for these things to keep going. So it is a little tricky, you know? Yeah, although, I mean, I, there's something wrong in a, in a world in which uh, you don't get a summary judgment 
uh, and just dismiss right. that crap, right? And 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 that's it's death by a thousand cuts, which is what the what the firearms industry and gun owners are dealing with right now. Extra taxes, they have to hold extra insurance, mm-hmm. extra regulation. They've got to build it a certain way. They got to do this. They have to do that. But like all of this is, it's a it's a it's a it's a way to slowly strangle the firearms industry because they can't outright ban the manufacturer of guns, which I think is what a lot of them want to do. Um, so, but yeah, I, 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 I get that. I guess, um, it's just, it doesn't make me feel a whole lot better. I guess that it was, okay. It was the insurance company settling. Yeah. 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 But, but, but the other side, why not push table. back? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But, so, but full circle, right? Like that's one of the reasons why I want the gun industry to get off their ass and start really, you know, if it's not a walk to talk America, figure out whatever it is yourself, right? Like right. figure out whatever organization that does, does, I guess, makes earth better. <laughs> right. And and really like wear it like a badge and beat your chest about it. Like, Hey, we're, tr- we try to get link people up with help. Like that's where I feel like we can get away from the Burns image of the greedy gun. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know. Right. Right. So, um, so that's what you guys do on the, on the firearm side. And then it sounds like there's, I know Jake touched on it earlier. It sounds like there's a, uh, something that you do on the therapy side as well. Um, you want to yeah, talk about that? We, um, so we hold trainings and these, these trainings are for, they're designed for practitioners of any stripe, really. I mean, we're targeting mental health because mental health people interface with people who are um, unstable psychologically, emotionally, whatnot. But it also ripples into primary care and emergency medicine and first responders, you know, the police and fire and so forth and paramedics. And um, and even, you know, we'll take that in, in business and industry attorneys. Um, you know, cause if we're trying to stop suicide, what comes before suicide? Despondency. What comes before despondency? Uh, despair before despair is uh, general malaise, you know, whatever it is. So if we can help people become attuned to these types of things, whether it's with their clients or patients or customers or their own staff, uh, then we can we can really help people, right? So my, my I, side note to this, I want to try to work myself out of a job. Um I'm really not attached to my identity as a therapist. If if I can work in a community that's fully healthy and doesn't experience, you know, couples arguing in the grocery store lines or my kid's not getting sand thrown in his face at the playground, and there's no bullying going on, then I'll happily put paint on walls uh, to pay my mortgage. I don't I don't need to be therapist guy. So I'm trying to get this information out so people stop walking through the door of my clinic. I don't, yep. I don't you don't need not everybody needs professional psychotherapy. So we try to touch these, these folks, uh, you know, wherever they are, um, attorneys or, you know, pizza, pizza store owners or, um, pub keepers and what, whatnot. And we say, here's how you interface with somebody who's in a tough time. Okay. If you're a professional in our realm, here's how you interface with somebody who's in a tough time and owns guns. And here's what right. you need to know about gun culture. Gun culture is not monolithic. It's not old grizzled white guy with a beard and, you know, wearing camouflage. And, um, it's, it could be your single black mom of two kids. Who's, you know, a Medicaid recipient working two jobs. It could be your, uh, firefighter who, you know, 
is built like a house of bricks and uh, has a fancy style mustache because that's what firefighters do these days. Uh, and, you know, yeah. And uh, he's like, man, I, I've, I've seen some real, real tough stuff over the last uh, couple of weeks because of my job and watching death and destruction and despair. Um, I own a firearm, but beyond the firearm, I also, um, you know, I don't want to lose my job because I don't want to be seen as a wuss on duty and I don't want my command staff to pull me off because they think I'm going to, uh, fold in the face of danger, you know, dragging hoses to burn, you know, spray down the burning house. Uh, you know, so we want to train our practitioners to be better versed in how to meet those people where they are. So part of this is gun culture. What is gun culture? Well, it encompasses lots of things, lots of people, lots of demographics. What are guns? Guns are many styles, many formats, uh, different uh, presentations, different constructions, history. Um, also, how do you work your suicidal intervention in with the firearms owner so that you don't uh, come off as clunky and weird, and then you end up offending them, they never come back, and then worse things happen. We're going to keep people in, in session. So part one of our three-part series is cultural competence, suicidal statistics, and intervention. Um, Part two is uh, testimony, and these are available for free on our website. You can do part one and part two. We'll spit you out a certificate at the end. Usually you can waive that in front of your licensing board for continuing education credit. Um, and part two is a testimony from a current clinical social work associate or intern, depending on what state you're in. Uh, he's, he's one of those. He's in North Carolina. He also used to be an EMT and a firefighter. It's a testimony from a current police officer here with Reno Police Department, who is also a licensed marriage and family therapist intern, a psychiatrist from UC Davis who works in gun violence prevention, and a former U.S. Air Force sergeant uh, who works in suicide postvention. And it's their testimonies about what keeps them away from getting care and what you need to know about their particular demographic. And then part three is like the lollipop at the end of the doctor visit. We, we do a range session where if you're really interested in this stuff, as Pirelli, grab my book, my prop, Johnny Pirelli commands in his, uh, he doesn't command it, he exhorts it, in his Behavioral Science of Firearms book, um, if you wanna get good at this stuff, go to the range, hang out with people who do this stuff and learn how to shoot, what it means to have some gun recoil in your hand and make a loud noise as the projectile exits the barrel and goes and tears a hole in paper. Uh, so we, we put together this pretty comprehensive three-part course and we offer it to people so that they become better versed in how to meet these people. Well, okay, so why is this necessary? I'm glad you asked that. And the reason it's necessary is because in 2017, Pew did a research poll on how many people own guns and are exposed to them. And we know that number's gone up. But at the time, in fall of 2017, it was estimated that there are 47% of Americans who either own a gun or live with somebody who does. That's half of America. And we yeah. know that demographic goes up or down depending on geography. Uh, but if you're living in a place like Northern Nevada, it's way more than half. And since the buying spree of 2020, 2021, it's way more than half. No matter where you live, if you're a practitioner, please, please hear this. One out of every two people on average who walk through your door will either own a gun or live with one. You cannot afford to be ignorant in this. You cannot afford to be clunky. You cannot afford to be judgmental in your language. You cannot afford to be 
cavalier in your politics because politics don't matter when it comes to God-given rights. Somebody somewhere who's walking into your clinic thinks that they need a firearm for whatever reason, and you don't get to disagree with them. You get to meet them where they are, understand their culture and their language from their perspective, not yours, and then treat them into wholesome healing. Like you don't, you don't get to say, I don't think guns are, should exist, or I don't, I think they're stupid. Like you don't get to do that. You get to meet people where they are and not interfere with their life choices. So that's why we're offering this course. And uh, sad to say, the gun community, as I've learned it in my last uh, three or four years, uh, is way more receptive to the mental health thing than the mental health people are to the gun thing. And, and that disappoints me greatly. But what is a cool is that yeah. because of my efforts and the efforts of some others like Eddie Davenport, who is on our board, um, we've now realized that there are some gun owning practitioners who are ready to come out of the closet and say, yep, I own guns and I'm a practitioner. You can trust me not to, to be weird and judgy. And that's pretty cool. So if nothing else gets moved in my profession among the you know large percentage of people who are pretty judgy at least we're now giving permission for the people like me and like eddie who can step forward and affirmatively say come see me come see my people we're we're not we're we're well armed and we're welcoming we're not going to judge you it's disappointing that a therapist has to be told yeah. <laughs> that you can't foist your political opinions on your clients it seems like that that should be uh i don't know in your psych 101 class in college it, yeah number one. it, it is that. it is and it's a frustration of mine because uh, i ran in those circles for so long that it was hard for me and mike could attest to this the first time we had our podcast on naga notes i was like hey so we can't really talk about me owning guns um because i don't know how that's going to go over it was like looking back, I'm like, what a cowardly maneuver that was for me. Like it was, it was terrible, but that's where I was because I was in those circles, hearing people in their whispers talking about how gun owners should be poo-pooed. It's like, I'm standing right here. Like right. I, I'm right here next to you. And I didn't have the, the fortitude or the spine to stand up to my peer colleagues and tell them to go pound sand because there's an entire demographic out there in the market that needs my help. And I'd rather cater to them because they need help and they're paying my bills and not you. than you who apparently wants to live in this rigid worldview that doesn't help anybody. Yeah. Um, and certainly, I mean, certainly the, the, one of the tools that the left employs quite well, especially the upper middle class left is uh, condescension and sneering about, uh, disagreement or any, any aberrant behavior that, that doesn't fit their narrative. So, um, you know, you're a slack jawed, stupid gun owner. How dare you? Like, so, you as, know, it turns you know. out, so as it turns out, I know a guy who does emotional functioning for a living <laughs> and can teach you about shame and guilt and how to get off the treadmill. <laughs> and his videos may or may not be available on those effort wellness website. So I, um, I, I want to ask, cause this is something that's bothered me for, uh, maybe it's my entire adult life. I can't remember a time when this wasn't true. When you go to the doctor, not a mental health, not a therapist, you go to the doctor to get a checkup. They always ask you, and I always lie. They always ask you. Actually, I don't lie. I usually just don't fill that one in, which maybe is giving away information. Uh, they always ask you if you if you own guns or if there's guns in the house. 
And uh, is there no push? Like, my, one of the reasons I don't answer that is I'm afraid that they're going to then, because they might not be therapists, but they have doctors have a lot of power. They can refer to people. They can decide. Oh, I mean, a doctor, you, you, the person that gives your checkup can decide that you're mentally crazy and do something about. That. Like, they they have the power to do that. Um, has that been going on forever? Why is it there? And is there any effort to kind of tell the medical establishment it's none of your business whether there's a firearm in my house? Uh, yeah. So great, great question. Um, definitely uh, something to be concerned with. But I have to give a really strong hat tip to Emmy Betts. Um, Emmy Betts, Doctor Betts, uh, who's a psychiatrist in Colorado. Uh, has been doing some really good research and is one of the ones who's authentically trying to be humble and curious about, she's not trying, she is being humble and curious about what what it means to be a firearms owner and how that impacts her own profession, has been steadfastly pushing out new information and new access to things like storage places and um, range and retail stores being forthcoming in their uh, testimonies about what it means to access mental health care. And one thing that she just, uh, there's, she did some research and I can't think of the, the paper off the top of my head. I'm going to, I'm going to stop talking in some, at some point and then I'll look it up and drop it to you so you can put it in the, the notes. But she just completed some research with some colleagues about language in primary care settings with regard to asking firearms owners about whether or not they own firearms, right? So we don't know their firearms owners. If I'm a primary care physician, you come in, you need help. I do the PHQ-9 for depression and I ask your, you know, GAD-7 for anxiety or whatever it is. And then I'm, and I do my demographic assessment of like, you know, do you own guns? And what they found, and I'm going to butcher this, so don't quote me. It's in the paper and I'll share that with you. But what they found was basically like people lie, like you said, uh, and then, uh, they end up taking their own lives with the firearm that we didn't know they had because they lied. And it's like, well, 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 maybe, maybe we need to do a better job of asking this and we need to moderate our language a little bit more. So that's what she's doing. She and her team, they're way more disciplined and intelligent about the research than, than I am. I'm more like, this is obviously a problem. Change your language. And they want to, they want to root it in evidence, which I totally applaud and I'm, I have no problem with. So Kudos to Emmy and her team. There is an effort underway uh, to to address exactly that, so that people are more compassionate in the primary care setting, the pediatric setting, uh, the mental health setting, so that we're not simply being like, "Do you own any guns?" You know, it's like, well, hey, they don't so... ask, for example, what kind of car I drive. Do you have a exactly. car with airbags? Do you have Do a you pool. Have, like, you know, yeah, like those are, are all. I can kill myself in off. lots of ways. So, like. Why is it that the one you're picking on? And we all suspect right. that it's a political motivation behind it because someone on the back end wants stats about gun owners. Yeah, it, it even ruins it for the people that might just be asking, you know, you have a gun, do you have a plan, right? Like that's that. And, and some people might just be asking that. Sure. Um, but but no one but no one believes that. Right. That's the problem, right? Remember when I said the dollar, if I could have a dollar for everyone that's come to me. I mean, I've had play, I've been, you know, at plenty of gun shows where I've had people from different companies come to me and they tell that exact same story. I I was asked, do I have a gun? The way they asked it was really weird. They just flat out asked it. And I lied. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Just, 
It's yeah. different if like, I mean, if you go to a doctor, I can imagine, although I've never been at a doctor's like this, I can imagine being a doc at a doctor's office where uh, the doctor had pictures of him, him hunting and like, you know, uh, SWAT magazine on the table or whatever. Like he had like stuff around the office that indicated like, I, I own a gun too. Uh, then it's like, oh, maybe you could ask, although even in that situation, I would say, well, why the hell do you care if I own a gun? Like I'm, I'm here for you to check my blood pressure and a bunch of other stuff. Why are you asking yeah. about like whether I own a gun or whether my house has earthquake protection or whether my car, like again, what kind of car I drive. There's lots of things that can kill me in the world that aren't related directly related to my health. Why is this, why are guns even in the health sphere of questions? Uh, probably cause it's, uh, the, the, the death rate is high. You know, if you look at like attempts, suicide attempts, by volume are uh, disproportionately pills or um, suffocation, which includes strangulation, but the completions are disproportionately firearm. So it's, it's the, it's the imminence of death. So it, it scares people. It's a limbic reaction. Um, you know, people motivate out of fear more often than they do anything else. Fear and excitement. Typically that's why our advertising is fear and excitement driven. I'm excited for the new iPhone. I'm afraid I'm not going to get it before my neighbor does. Right. Like that's, that's, that's yellow journalism. So I think it's really easy to trot that out from a neurological evolutionary adaptive standpoint to say, uh, guns are scary because they kill, uh, therefore be afraid of them, therefore control them. It's like, it's a very easy conclusion to, mm. to draw for those who are not interested in parsing out the, the, nuances uh of the the conversation and saying that there's more to this uh it's it's hard it's a hard sell to sell protection and the things that didn't happen you know i i defended my family against a violent criminal because i simply lifted my shirt and showed my firearm and he went away that doesn't make the news i didn't even make a registry right 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 yeah if it was presented in such a way this is what i try to tell people when they ask me it's like Okay, if uh, maybe I'm putting you on a medication because you busted up your knee, right? And I say, look, one of the side effects of this medication is depression, right? Might not happen to you, but if you have a firearm in the house, I suggest you do some responsible storage and maybe lock it away for a few days to see how you feel. Like that's a different way of approaching talking to a gun owner. But I mean, gun owners notoriously... Yeah we don't even want to share our serial numbers. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, right, we, right. like we, we hide them in the photos, you know? So, yeah. you know, we're secretive. Like we, we don't want people infringing on our rights. We don't want people knowing our business. Uh, it's it's, it's going to take a long time to, to really, you know, change that, that kind of mentality. If it's going to yeah, be changed and, at all. Yeah. You, and you could certainly, I could certainly, I, I, I wouldn't react negatively to something that was like kind of what you said, like, Oh, Hey, uh, if you have a gun, here's some things you might want to do because of this thing. Or if you have any, hey, this causes depression. If you have a gun or you've got a bunch of, you know, other ways to off yourself, you might want to distance yourself from those things around. You want to make sure maybe you should make sure that you're around your your loved ones in the next few days because you might be extra depressed. Like, here's some steps you can take and 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 not playing with the gun while you're in this state is one on a list of many things you can do. And it's just kind of thrown out there as, as some advice rather than, Hey, you got a gun, which is, which is, right. 
Right. But, uh, you, know, you brought up SSRIs earlier, right? You, you, when we were talking about the mass shooting thing and it's like, you know, our stance on SSRIs is like, look, we, we get it. Like, that's not, we don't want it the end all be all just like, Hey, we're going to, you're feeling blue. Like here, you know, do this. Right. I know Jake doesn't do that. <laughs> um, yeah. But the thing is, is that, you know, SSRIs help people. Um, yeah. A lot of people, there are a lot of people on them that never do anything, you know, evil or wrong or hurt themselves. Um, but one of the things that I always say is how many people take them properly, right? Like how many people take an SSRI and they say like, I'm going to keep a journal. I'm going to, you know, write out monitor. I'm going to get off alcohol. I'm not going to drink while I'm on this. I'm not going to do any drugs while I'm on this. And, you know, uh, and that's, it's really, you know, when it comes to gun ownership and things like that, it's like, those are the things to think about. Like if I'm trying a new SSRI, you know, maybe I, I lock up my firearm and I have my wife, you know, have the code while we see where I'm at, you know what I mean? In 15 days. Right. right? Um, talk, talk about what, uh, what, uh, Canon is doing. That's a, that's a, this is a good segue uh, with it, with the technology. Oh yeah. Yeah. So uh, when I was in and, uh, and the Lyme and the Lyme disease story is really cool. Yeah. Am I so, going to have to breathe into my safe to open it? Is that going to be a, no. <laughs> that's not a bad idea though. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. How many people, um, do something. That's not a bad idea. Or, wow. <laughs> there you go. You can have that idea too. Go run with that. Billy. Yeah. Um, so I, I, when I first started working with Mental Health America, I was meeting with them out in Colorado because I was speaking at an event and I had an Uber driver and uh, he, my buddy's car, his name's Rob Pincus. He's a firearms trainer. Uh, it looks like a NASCAR for firearms companies. Right. And uh, I get in the Uber and the guy wants to talk about, you know, firearm stuff naturally because he's like, oh, you're part of the gun industry. And I, when I get an Uber and elevator, I usually don't like to make small talk. I usually sit on my phone or look at the numbers. Um but it was really interesting because I was like, oh, I'll just tell him in the mental health side and maybe this conversation will stop. And we're on the freeway. And uh, I, I said, yeah, I, I, I'm on the mental health side. I do guns and uh, mental health. And he pulled the car over on the highway. I remember thinking this is the most oddest thing that's going to happen. Right. And he, and he goes, <laughs> he's stopping, he turns around. He says, look, I, I, I want I want you to hear what I'm saying. Um, because I think this is important. And he's like, God put you in this car for a reason. And I'm thinking, God put me in the car for, I'm going to die. <laughs> like, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. did, well, did God that? lock the doors too? Because yeah. I'm a little bit concerned at this. <laughs> you know, like, what's going to happen? No, but it was really cool. And I'm glad he did it because um, he was like, I suffer from Lyme disease. And it just so happened the day before I was talking with the vice president of Mental Health America and her, and her son. She was telling me the problems that Lyme disease can present if it's untreated or undiagnosed many times it's mistaken for mental health issues right oh, okay. um, it attacks your brain and everything like that it's things i didn't know you know i always thought it just made you lethargic and sick right um but he said i go through these episodes uh and he goes they usually last around three four or five days you know he says where i'm just out of it and he's like my wife is instructed to take the firearms out of the house uh because it gets really dark during that time during that time Right. And she knows me. And so she'll take the, you know, she'll bring the firearms back into the house when she feels comfortable. I thought, wow, what an awesome story about responsible gun ownership. Yeah. Like, you know, you just don't hear stuff like that. Usually it's like the macho, like I'm fine. You know, right. my gun's getting there. Right. Um, but I was obsessed with that story. I, you know, I kept thinking about it. And then I went and I met with uh, one of the owners at Canon Safe at the time. And, and we were kind of discussing 
I, I was sharing that story and he's like, well, we can, we can build that technology. Um, you know, maybe with an app or something to where the person the time lock. just time lock. Right. Yeah, exactly. You got it. Right. Uh, and I thought, Oh, that's really cool. That's another thing that we could do as an industry to show that we care and we're, we're, we're working on something. And at the time, I didn't even think about how that like would apply to transfer laws where, where states where you can't hand your firearm over to somebody mm -hmm. like Nevada, right. In California, you can't yep. just, I can't give my firearm to Jake in a time of right. crisis, to take it out. Right. And some people don't even want to touch guns. So like this technology that these safe companies now are moving forward on like Canon and um, a couple of the other ones that have, this idea is, I think it's brilliant, right? Cause you don't have to use it if you don't want to. It's, it's like, right. if you, you know, it's just there if you wanted to do it and obviously everything being above board, you know, you make that agreement with your, your spouse or your friend to let them have that control to shut down the safe for whether it's seven hours or two weeks or a month. Yeah. And then it could also double as something if you go on vacation to Hawaii, right? Like you could just shut your safe sure. down. So I, I really love the concept, but it's, it's, you know, that's the type of things, the out-of-the-box ideas that I think we can help, you know, kind of reduce risk and, you know. Yeah, I love that concept as well. Uh, although there is a small voice in the back of my head. I was a cryptographer for 20 years or, I don't know, maybe not quite that long. There's a small thing in the back of my mind going, don't connect your safe to the internet. I don't want an app <laughs> to my safe. I'm I'm upset that my safe, my new safe has... Uh, a, a keypad. I want the old, I want like nothing electronic. I want an old thing, but uh, I think there's absolutely use for that kind of thing. I think it's a brilliant idea. So um, I don't understand. Really you, cool. you keep referencing things from 20 years ago, like your, your firearms training and your cryptography for 20 years. <laughs> and, and you look like yes. you're 28. So I that's contracted not for the NSA. That's true. <laughs> also. Yes. Uh, I am in my late forties. So uh, yeah, I just, uh, so is my life works. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm in my early 40s 41. still. I'm, I'm in We're my both early 21. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, again, I know I've been keeping you guys for a while, but I, I just have another, <laughs> I, I want to, I want to ask uh, um, you, Mike, what, and well, maybe, you know, as well, Jake, but uh, what, uh, what's been the trend? I, I have an intuitive sense because I read, headlines from uh mainstream media what's been in the trend in the last few years in terms of uh gun ownership and gun laws and like what's where's america moving right now well i mean with the pandemic the shift in gun ownership has drastically changed when you look at the demographics right which i think is great because there's that saying like the second is for everyone what the pandemic has showed us is that the second is for everybody Right. No matter what group. <laughs> right. Yep. Like if you if you feel like, you know, you're being attacked or you're targeted, arm up. Right. And be your be responsible for your own safety, which, yeah, I love that. I love that there's even this whole, you know, what we found is that many uh, from the liberal side ran out and bought firearms when there's all this civil unrest. Nice. Uh, so you're seeing this a completely different look of firearms ownership, getting away from what the stereotype was is the the duck dynasty, you know, 40 something right. year old white man. Um, as hey, far hey, as don't knock 40 something year old white man. Just <laughs> be careful. We're supposed to hate ourselves. No. Uh, uh, but as far as gun laws, I think that's going to vary from state to state on what's happening, right? Like some states I would say are going in the right direction. And then there's states like Washington state, which I feel like are going in the wrong direction, but you're seeing different states like do constitutional carry, which I, I, I dig. Um, 
you know, I think that's really cool. But then you're also seeing some states just, you know, like, for example, in California, like right where you're at, uh, you know, in Sacramento, they just did like gun owners now need to carry extra insurance, which I think really screws over the underprivileged, underserved communities. Gun ownership is expensive. So now you've just created another expense for gun owners. Um, right. Really and like a lot of Calif California has this relationship with gun laws where they do things that are going to get struck down eventually and they don't give a crap because everyone has to abide by it until it gets struck down. And then they when it then it gets struck down and then they just tweak it a little bit and do it again. Um, so you're perpetually in this state of living under a law that probably won't last and probably is is will get struck down by the courts. But doesn't matter. You got to comply anyway, because it's in effect at the moment. Um, so it's, it's really a dastardly thing to do. Um, it's, you know, it's using the courts, uh, but you know, Hey, it's California. I just got, I just have to leave, I guess is kind of, yeah. <laughs> Northern Nevada will welcome you. Yeah. But that's the worst part about, you know, that's the thing is like, you think of New Jersey and you think of California and it's just like, they, they come after these rights. Once again, they are, they're not going to make a dent in a, a difference in, in, in people dying. And, uh, right. you know, it forces people to throw their hands up and say, I have to leave. We can't have everybody leave. You know, you have to have the people that yeah. come stay back and fight, you know. Uh, but I, I understand why people are like, screw it. I want to go. I'm going to Texas or I'm going to Nevada, or, you know. Right. Uh, right. You know, I wouldn't put Nevada in the same class as Texas. Oh, you know, one thing I would say, though, too, is that I didn't realize this until I saw some of the the, the GIF um graphics that people were showing rob pink is credit for this too um maps of united states circa 1986 to present and it's like year by year watching the states colors uh shift with regard to what type of uh, sorry what type of firearm ownership you can have so it's like own carry own conceal carry own open carry so it's like it morphs and and the and the map grows in color to present day and the caption usually reads something like you know we're winning oh we're winning right it's like more and more people are allowed to own and operate and carry as they see fit their personal choice of defense and and then there's also this shift from I don't know, four generations ago, uh, we owned firearms to defend against predator attacks and to hunt our food and maybe do some sport shooting too. In the last 30 years, it's personal defense. And yep. and for the for the government to step in, even if even if we believe that the government's righteous and and has our own best interests in mind. And we don't never need to like arm up against the government, right? Let's pretend that's that's off the table. To for them to step in and say, uh, "No, sorry, you random person, wherever you live, you don't get to choose your weapon of defense should you be attacked, and our government services can't be there to protect you," is despicable. It's like. Yeah. I, that's not why I've elected you. That's not why I'm paying taxes for you to do what you do. Um, government typically is to protect rights and to protect people. And then we get into this like slippery slope of protecting people against, you know, from themselves. And that's where we get like, you know, 20 ounce uh, soda limitations and all that nonsense. But when you, when you willfully say, I know better than you how to defend yourself against uh, ill 
conceived uh, intent from the outside, that's where we really go haywire because it, it opens it up to all sorts of nefarious opportunities for people to go into the quote unquote gun free zones and cause mayhem. And that's, that's exactly what we're seeing. Mayhem doesn't get caused in gun zones. <laughs> it gets causing, it gets causing gun free zones. Right. Um, so that's, that's, it's encouraging to see that kind of thing uh, because I'm, I'm a fan of Liberty. I like, I like, you know, autonomy. I talked about that earlier with one of our five ethical precepts, allowing people the opportunity to choose for themselves, how they're going to live their own lives. And then we ourselves have to be able to tolerate the distress of them choosing poorly uh, as we watch them, you know, sink into whatever they sink into that we don't like. Um, one of those things is self-defense. And one of those self-defenses even will, will take a tangent off to COVID. It's like, I don't need to compel you to wear a mask or to get a shot. I, my, my job is to educate you about the risks and benefits thereto pertaining. And you can wear a mask if you want and get a shot if you want or don't if you don't and and i have to if i don't like your choice i have to tolerate that distress and i think we've got a country full of people who can't tolerate watching other people in distress because they they themselves can't tolerate their own distress so therefore we elevate out of a sense of justice to say hey you got to do this thing now because i can't bear to watch you suffer and that's yep. not what freedom is about that's not what autonomy is about it's not what liberty is about liberty is about education over restriction yeah, you know, it's what's wild, too. Um, and I know that people are probably gonna, like when they hear this, right, they're going to be like, what? <laughs> like, we don't have a gun issue. We really don't. And, and the reason why I say that, um, being the ungun gun guy that got into the gun industry is I was like doing quick math when I first got in because I was like asking my family, like, how many guns do we sell a year? And they're just like eh, 60 to 80,000. I'm like, we don't have any um, military contracts or any police department contracts. And they're like, no. So every one of our guns gets sold to like civilians through a gun store. They're like, yes. And I'm like, we're tiny. <laughs> like, right. we're, we're a tiny company. Like, <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, like you got Ruger, Smith & Wesson, HK, SIG, High Point, Arms Corps, and all these other companies, these big companies, right? Mossberg. And I'm like, they're doing more than 60, 80,000 guns a year. It's, it's literally like figuring out that you are swimming amongst sharks when you're swimming in the bay. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like if you knew how many sharks were in there, you'd probably think twice about swimming in there. Right. But let's just face yep. it. Sharks don't, you know, guns don't kill people. It's a, if you look at the sheer number of firearms, it's, it's kind of amazing that there isn't more issues. Right. Um, yeah, the ratio of firearms ownership in the U S I don't, I don't know if you remember what it is, but it's, it's like, it's enormous. I mean, it's like, I think compared to the rest of the world, it's just like orders and orders of magnitude. Yeah. And we're and not even, our we're not crime even is number one in death, you know? Right. Well, there's the, the estimates are because we don't have a registry, thank God. Um, but it's about 110 million ish. And we could add 15 to 20 million based on the buying spree the last two years. Gun owners. So you're, you're, you're cresting a third the population almost. Yeah. To well, approaching a half years, of the yeah. adult. Yeah certainly the adult population right because yeah. roughly 30 percent are kids uh, uh, maybe 40 and um so you're talking like half of the adult population of america owns guns and most of those people own many guns so it's it's not a gun issue so we're talking maybe 300 330 million guns to those 100 110 million gunners here's the crazy thing that i just learned the nra at its peak membership only claimed about 5 million members which means 
the NRA for being the the big, you know, hairy, ugly thing that everybody thinks it is only represented about five or less percent of all gun owners in America, which wow. is nuts. Yeah. I didn't realize which it means, was that small. Yeah. And, and five million sounds like a lot. That's a lot of members, right? But it's like compared to everybody else, uh, you, the NRA doesn't represent most people. Yeah. Well, they certainly don't represent me. I think they're the biggest gun control organization in the history of America. Um, so <laughs> I've got some issues. Too. <laughs> uh, that's, that's next podcast. <laughs> yeah. If you want to check out gun owners of America or something else, you guys, you, you can, you can do that. Um, well, uh, look, I, the one, the one thing I will say, you've got, you guys have mentioned the diversity in the gun community before. I'm just going to encourage people. The best way to to get a sense of that is to go to the gun range. If you've never gone to a gun range, just go to a gun range. And there might be the old wizened guy in camos, but he'll be like one guy there. And there'll be other. There'll be, it is really it was really a diverse type of people. Um, and they are really nice. I'm mean, as a range safety officer for a while. And the people just tend to be super super nice if you're a newbie everyone wants to help you um it is a very welcoming it's not you know it's you're not walking into a skinheads meeting which i think a lot of people on the left assume that that's what it's going to be like uh when they go to the gun range and it's not that at all um, i i even analogize it to the homebrew community if people are listening who have ever brewed beer like even experimentally once you have to go to your local homebrew store usually to find that stuff out unless you bought your kid at walmart and um I was intimidated going into that and I, and I was intimidated going into the, the gun community, but the same humble, deferential, uh, welcoming atmosphere is like nothing is proprietary. We all want to share. We all want to help each other. We're all in this for the same reason, which is the hobby, you know, or the sport or the, the rights or whatever it is. It's very, very uh, ego dissolutional. I guess if I could make up a word like no, nobody has a big, big pride ego about it. There are people out there who do that thing, but, but by and large, it's just a lot of friendly people. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's cool. Yeah. And there's an yeah. organization for everybody that somebody can identify with. Right. So you have your LGBTQ, you know, organizations, you have your, your black organizations, right. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I mean, pew, pew, right. Like we should list them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I list some of them, P uh, pink pistols, liberal gun owners, liberal gun club, uh, Black Guns Matter, uh, second, uh, second is for everyone, guns for everyone. Like, uh, what am I missing here? I don't know. You named, uh, you named the ones that I, I knew. I only knew two of those. Well, yeah, I think, I think you hit the ones that I knew. Mosh Therese, you hit in there. You hit, uh, uh no, no other choice. Um, that's yeah. Kevin Dixie, uh, Argo J. Um, yeah, the, 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 then the DC Project, which is women, women advocating for gun rights. They do trainings. They also do political advocacy. Um, every state, I think every state has a chapter, 47 yeah, or 48 right. of them, almost yeah. every state. Um, yeah, it's it's crazy. Like, it's so, so, so crazy diverse. I never, I never thought it existed. Yeah, I mean, it's fun to always kind of introduce that into conversations, especially like when you're talking with liberals, right? You're just like, yeah, I, we we're talking with the Liberal Gun Club or Liberal Gun Owners the other day. And they're like, what? It's like, API yeah, Go, uh, Asian American Pacific oh, Go, or yeah. Gun Owners. Oh, yep. 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 They're in your neck yeah. of the woods. J there's a JPFO. Uh, if you, there's a Jewish Jews for the Preservation of Fire, Firearm Ownership. That's a, that's an organ. They're yeah. excellent on the Second Amendment, as you 
can imagine. Chris Chang is in oh. your neck of the woods too. He's he's a Bay Area guy. Yeah, he's he's a he's a he's a gay Asian Second Amendment advocate who is in IT. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's a computer yep. guy. <laughs> like, make yeah. those all fit. Oh, it turns out humans are really deep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and yeah, we have no, we have a relationship with almost every single organization. So what's good is like if we stumble upon somebody that's just not getting it from our faces, right? Like we can yep. we can bring these other organizations. It's like, look, they exist, and they'll explain to you why this is important or how this yep. affects them. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So, guys, is it, what else should I? Is there anything else that I should have been asking that I didn't ask that you guys wanted to talk about? We have a podcast. I heard about that. <laughs> and now that we know that you're a gun owner, we might have you on that podcast. Um, I, th I, I think what's what's heartening is to me as the as the clinician who you know Mike refers to as like the what do you what do you call me the I say he's like the uh, vampire that can also turn into a werewolf, right? Yeah, like I walk in both worlds. He walks in both worlds, and he could just navigate in both worlds. Like he could literally be within a room full of clinicians and then he could be in a room full of like pride from a cold dead hands guys. So, and, yeah. And I think what, what's heartening to me is that specifically speaking to the firearms community, um, I haven't yet met anybody in person. There's, there's been some blowback online from some ignorant individuals who just refuse to change their mind. That's fine. You know, live in your echo chamber, but personally, and we've been to some big events, big shows, and um and and kevin dixie's train and learn for example there's 75 people there every single one of them is like we're so glad you're doing this thank god somebody's finally doing this and for as many organizations as there are that do you know firearms safety research or uh gun violence prevention research um nobody is doing guns and mental health Nobody. They might be doing suicide prevention with some safe storage stuff or whatever, but like we're it. And it it's like it's it's so well received because everybody has been touched by this. Everybody has been touched by this. Not and I most of them have had the suicide, which is sucky. But every single person is like, oh yeah, you know, like we'll be at a convention or we'll be at a show and somebody will sidle up to us and sort of tiptoe back and forth and they'll lean in and then we'll lean out and pick up a flyer and they'll be like, yeah, so, um, well, boy, I had an ex-wife, boy, she was, she was batshit crazy. And, uh, you know, I was always worried about her and, uh, and then she took her own life. And, uh, anyway, uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for doing what you do. And then they like scamper away and it's like, we just touched a person who, previously didn't think this was possible you know like it's seed yep. planting at its minimum and at maximum people are inviting us to go give talks to their training courses because they're instructors saying hey drop in for you know do, i'm talking to a couple of guys about doing a little video package of what emotional functioning is just so their ccw trainees can understand how to be aware in the event that down the road something goes sideways they can be like oh yeah i heard that thing that one time and i, I shouldn't be afraid of this like it's been so well received and I, i'm i'm super proud and then we got like another book next to me david yamani uh yamani from wake forest university who was not a gun owner until he had to become one but was gun curious and he he wrote a book called concealed carrier revolution it's a historical thing it's very thin it's a really easy read um, but he's a professor at Wake Forest. Mike and Rob went and taught at one of his classes as guest speakers. And he's he's just putting out these videos and blog posts 
about what it's like to be a part of gun culture after not being part of gun culture. He was just on our podcast that that episode will drop soon. Um, and it's, it's just like, it's walking in the middle, you know, it's like, it's like bridging the gap. Like we, we try to do and it's touching more and more people. And it's just, it's just super cool. Like, I, I don't know. I, I just didn't want to leave without saying how well received it is. This is not a controversial topic to most people. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's embraced. I love what you guys are doing. I mean, as a, as a guy who loves, I mean, I, I think therapy is super important for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> a lot of us are more broken than we want to admit. I think guys especially don't, uh, don't seek help when they need it. Um, and, uh, I just, I love the over, I love the Venn diagram that you guys have, are, are exploiting. So, um, how remind people how they can find your podcast and what it's called. You can find it. You can go to our website and find it, but you can find it on every, every single platform, you know, out there. So you, you got like Spotify, you know, wherever it is, wherever you find your podcast, you just guns and mental health, WTTA podcast um, on social media. You can find us by going at walk the talk us. Uh, we're on Instagram or on Twitter. Um, we're on uh, Facebook, <laughs> you know, so those are the three places that we, we, we hang out. We, we respond as well. Like, you know, if you have any questions, you can you can reach out to Jake and I, um, you know, we're always monitoring everything, the chats and everything like that to make sure we get to people. But our website is WTTA.org. So you can go there and uh, check out. There's a lot of information there. So it's a lot to take in. So we, we understand that people probably go there and, you know, bounce around. Um, and then, you know, obviously, Jake, do you want to talk about Zephyr Wellness? Yeah, so I just dropped in the thing. You can post that uh, my emotional functioning video series again. You know, I want I want to keep people out of the clinic. I, I don't. I want you to learn this stuff, integrate it into your own life. Um, you know, get better at understanding why you respond the way you do to environment. Become better parents. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention a good friend and mentor of mine, Christian Conti he has a great book called walking through anger, which is his life's work on yield theory, which is something he came up with about meeting people where they are. It's a big influence in my life, my practice, what we do at WTTA. He was also a guest on the podcast. Uh, C O N T E is his name. Uh, get his book on Amazon. It's about 18 bucks. Uh, it's anybody can read it, but, and, and Zephyr has a YouTube channel. It's got one guy on it. It's me, but <laughs> we got, we got a YouTube <laughs> channel. And I try to put out some videos that are useful and, um, applicable. Um, but I, I just, you know, listen to noggin notes if you're interested in the, the general mental health stuff, but really take a free and anonymous mental health screening, go to, go to our website, go to WTTA.org slash love Take free and honest mental health screening. It's powered by Walk uh, about powered by uh, Mental Health America. Mental Health America is a great organization. You don't have to worry about your data getting sold or anything like that. And um, and check in on yourself. Like offer it to your teenagers. Um, one one story I will leave with about the screenings is I had this uh, I had this teenager I was working with who is uh, fourteen, fourteen at the time, and she. Um, <laughs> She'd had a, a suicide in her family, um, very, very depressed, didn't think she was, had some anxiety, but she did not want to acknowledge she was depressed. I, reasons are immaterial, but would not acknowledge she was depressed. So I was like, yeah, yeah, you got some anxiety. All right, cool, which she did. And then one day she comes in after, I don't know, four or five sessions. She says, hey, so uh, I, I took that screening. I said, what screening? Because I'd kind of forgotten that like it was a thing and she's 14. And I wasn't I wasn't talking to her about guns and mental health. And um, 
Says, uh, so I was listening to your podcast, Noggin Notes, and, and you mentioned free anonymous mental health screening. So I went on there and I took the screening. And very much like Mike's daughter, <laughs> she says, she comes in and she goes, uh, I, I didn't like the result. And I went and told my friend. And I said, uh, the screening, I think, is broken. And she said, she said straight up to me, she says, I think it's broken. Uh, and I said, all right, tell me more. And she says, uh, well, it said I was depressed. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> We've been talking about this, right? She goes, yeah. But now I don't think it's broken anymore because I talked to my friend and she says, uh, this thing says I'm depressed and she says, well, yeah, everybody knows that. <laughs> and so then that opened up a cool conversation. I said, all right, let's shift therapy a little bit. Let's go away from your anxiety and towards your depression. Where do you think that comes from? And we went through the DSM and all the criteria. And she's like, yep, I hit that. I hit that. I hit that. And, and so the screening, because it was very, you know, out there, it was, it was very hands off. It was very remote. Uh, and externalized. She was able to sit down knowing that no one would track her. She answered honestly, and she came out with an answer she didn't like, and then brought it back to me, her clinician, and said, holy cow, I uh, might be depressed. And I was like, yeah, I've been telling you that for weeks. <laughs> uh, and this disinterested third party called the computer told her, and she finally believed it. So that actually improved treatment. She was uh, discharged in three weeks. So wow. take a free and anonymous mental health screening. It'll help you. That's a great story. Uh and a, and a good ending. Thank, thank to both of you for spending uh, what now I think it's been two hours, <laughs> over two hours with me. Uh, love the conversation. And uh, I'm going to try and get together with you guys in real life if you're both in Nevada. Uh, Nevada. I'm gonna force Nevada. You to, force you to hand. Oh, Nevada. Nevada. I can't say Nevada. Nevada. No. Uh, not around Jake. <laughs> nope. No. <laughs> nope. Yeah, yeah. I will Nevada. not serve you homebrew. Nevada. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, we, anytime. Like, you know, if you can get over Reno, I'm just a quick flight up there. So I'd love to spend some time, hang out. Cool. Yeah, we could cool. we could even do our podcast live. I got a little studio here. You can see, and um, it'd be neat to get the three of us together and talk about other things. Because I know you Absolutely. you you cover a lot of stuff on your. You're doing great work, by the way. Good job, and keep it up. And I'm I'm very happy to to have met you and to know you. You're a good voice. Thanks. I'm not. Uh, I'm not always sure what I'm doing, but I'm trying. So. Uh... So advancing thought i'll try so i do appreciate it thank you both for your time thanks everyone for watching please don't forget to go to unsafespace.com to support the show thanks for sticking around until the end if you're new to unsafe space Check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production may be upsetting to Brian Stelter. Please do not expose him to it. For completely legitimate reasons, Taylor Lawrence is requesting any information you may have about the following individuals. The Twitter subroutine appears to be malfunctioning. Pay no attention to it. 
Did you know that the word liberty is a dog whistle for insurrectionists? If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.